community is defined by the people who play a role in bolstering its viability and uplifting those who exist inside it, creating platforms for homeostatic living through their actions. Chuck Sizemore has been influential in the evolving of community at the intersection both literally and figuratively of an oft-marginalized neighborhood in the midst of a transformation that could either be monumental or devastating for its inhabitants. Today on Cocina Pirata Podcast, Chuck joins me to discuss fatherhood, the importance of mutual aid, and growing a business with Commonwealth as a masthead. Contra la muerte, nosotros demandamos vida. Contra el silencio, exigimos la palabra y el respeto. Contra el olvido, la memoria. Contra la humillación y el desprecio, la dignidad. Contra la opresión, la rebeldía. Contra la esclavitud, la libertad. Contra la imposición, la democracia. Y contra el crimen, la justicia. We're good to go. Um, how's it going, man? Good. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the microphone. Are you nervous? A little, yeah. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> I've done it a few times. I mean, I hope I don't. I hope I don't. Uh, no, it's I fine. I, don't I swear mean, as much as as the last time. Yeah, it wasn't the last one. Actually, the last one I did was uh, with these. Um, have you heard of migrant justice? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I the food project vianda that i showed you like the fermented products were i'm donating 10 percent of the profit to those guys nice um and so i i invited this girl her name is uh marita canedo she's from bolivia and she's been working with them for like 13 years so it was a really interesting conversation actually i didn't know that much about um i knew i i knew how they started they started because um a dairy uh, a dairy worker in the state died on the like died from an accident on the job and the community raised up and and started doing this kind of you know behind closed doors it wasn't it wasn't a nonprofit to start it was like a group of people and mm-hmm. then you know as they grew they they gathered some steam but she's from Bolivia and I didn't know about all the crazy shit that I knew that there was some unrest or like some civil uprising in Bolivia in the in the eighties and nineties, or probably historically there always has been. But she was she actually grew up in that, and I didn't know. Did you know about Bolivia's no fight for water and freedom? No, yeah, it's crazy. You fight for water that sounds yeah. Like they, I, she told me that they. You'll have to listen to the to, to the the podcast because she <laughs> explains it much better than I could. But essentially, they were privatizing like fucking wells in people's backyard, Mm -hmm. you know, which we will never be able to understand that kind of life. No. (laughs) I I grew up in Michigan. Did you grow up in Michigan your whole, like until you were 18? Yeah. I moved, I moved to Vermont when I was 21. What'd you move? I was in Michigan until then. How old are you? The land of water. How old are you? The land of fresh water. Um, 41. I just turned 41. You're fucking old, man. I know. Can finally you're say that way, to somebody. You're on your way there, though. I know. I'm not. You know I'm knocking on the door, dog. <laughs> Everyone is. <laughs> what was it like growing up in Michigan? Uh, I mean, it was fine. I guess I. I don't. I didn't like it. Uh, I don't even call it home anymore. Um, but I've been here almost, almost as long as I was there. So this feel, you know, this feels like home. Yeah. Um, I grew up in the suburbs. 
it's you know it sucked um and southeast michigan is just it's like a sprawling industrial hellscape is it detroit-esque well no i so i grew up in gross point which is a nice like middle class to upper class suburb of detroit um but yeah, Detroit is, it, it, when I say that, like, it's just like everything has been developed, you know? Yeah. You go up north in Michigan and it's gorgeous, beautiful. There's plenty of like, um, you know, uh, national parks and, but not like where I was, where I grew up, it was, you know, had been heavily developed. I mean, it was the heartbeat of industry in the United States for a period anyway. What was the industry there? Cars. Cars. Yeah. So huge highways. I mean, the, the automobile companies um, made it impossible for there to be any sort of public transit. So there's just these like huge interstates. Everyone drives. Um, everyone's got like some level of connection. If, yeah. they, did, if they didn't work in, in the auto industry, somebody in their family did or does. Or Did your parents? My mom did my, well my my grandfather worked at Chrysler. My grandfather was uh, he came here from Austria. So he was a uh you know, fresh off the boat. He uh went to Detroit to try to work at Ford and got a job at Chrysler and worked there his entire life. Um and he was born in 1899 so he worked there pre and post unions. Um and so yeah, and then my mom did work at um where did she work? She worked at Ford like when I was in high school as a copy editor. That's wild. Yeah. That's wild. You, so it was your mom's dad that yes. worked at Chrysler? Yeah. What happened at Chrysler, man? I have no idea. But he like I love the store like growing up, he like loomed so large like he he worked there for like I can't even remember how many years, but you know, like 40, 50 years or something like that. Never missed a day of work. Sick. You know, it was never late. He missed one half day because he cut off part of his finger. <laughs> this is the story. Like, he like cut part of his finger off, went, got stitched up, and came back and finished that day at work. <clears throat> Where did those dudes go? And he bought a house. Yeah. You know, and raised a family. And he retired on a pension in Social Security and lived till he was 101. That's insane. Like, literally the American dream. How did he arrive in, how did he arrive here or there, I should say? In, in in Michigan specifically for the job yeah to try to to try to get a job at Ford at that time yeah because um, my understanding is Henry Ford was like desperately trying to get people to come work for him and he was just in, in he was in Austria like oh no by then he was in the United States ah, okay, okay they okay, came okay, here okay. you know he, his family came here and then for, you know I think it was New York and then Pennsylvania. And then the opportunity was in Detroit, so they went to Detroit. Sick. That is the the fucking. <clears throat> he worked on the fucking assembly line. He wasn't like a upper management or anything. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. I yeah, mean, totally. like that is like that's what we're missing. Yeah, right now, right? Is like you can't. Well, like what like blue collar job? Can, well, I guess maybe if you're like a plumber or something. But what like blue collar job can you do where you just like punch a clock? Uh, but are able to like buy a house and raise a family and your kids go to college and live better than you did. Yeah. Not really any, because I guess 
I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily correlated to like, in my mind, at least if it's correlated to like that job specifically not paying what it paid at that time, or if it's like things are just more expensive now or like sure. lifestyle is more expensive now. I don't really know. I mean, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. That's how fucking people used to do shit. Right. That w- that was the American dream. You could come up and now you can't, but that's fucking classic neoliberalism at work. Right. Like there's people making sure that you're, that there's, that there's boundaries or, or levels that you can't cross, I guess. I don't right. really know. And, and maybe it's expectation too. Maybe like, you know, maybe you could buy, well, uh, uh, there's definitely not factories. So that's like a moot point, right? <laughs> yeah. so we, can, we can't really go down that road, but yeah, maybe if you're like, maybe if you're a painter or like a construction worker, you could buy a house. Yeah. But I guess your grandfather was probably not interested in like the new Apple watch, you know? that wasn't even a thing no i heard this is just a like kind of a tangent kind of not a tangent it has something to do with this i was listening to um the real organic podcast and they were talking to dan barber and dan barber was talking about how people complain about how the price of food and he didn't say complain about the price of food he just said that people say that they can't justify spending money on food Mm -hmm. and what he said was uh, 20 years ago, if you had told someone that they were going to spend a hundred dollars a month on a cell, on a bill uh, to have a phone in their pocket mm-hmm. that could connect to the computer, they'd be like, fuck you. There's no way I'm going to have that money, mm-hmm. but they find a way they have found a way to do it. Right. And so maybe that's part of this equation of like, not of a, maybe our perception is what's different, right? Maybe the mm-hmm. house isn't right. I mean, I don't know. No, there's something there. You know, we, we were probably more frivolous than with our money, certainly than my grandfather was. He's fucking absolutely, <laughs> dude. I mean, that's something I think about a lot actually is like, you know, I like want versus need is a constant conversation in my head. Mm-hmm. Do I, and I think that I, I think that I, I think that we all make excuses for specific things. It's like, I, despise my phone mm-hmm. but i like justify it in my, i'm like could i just get rid of the fucking phone mm-hmm. and my partner will be the first person to tell you i spend a lot of time staring at that fucking thing mm-hmm. thinking that something's gonna come out like come out of it that's gonna make my life better right like i'm gonna like search something long enough where i'm gonna have like a solution to a problem or an idea right i think before like your grandfather probably just went out and like got his hands dirty figured shit out right yeah i don't think he, yeah he probably didn't think about it too much either yeah you know what i mean like we we think about things and why we do things more than he just, I mean, he did what he had to do. Yeah. Uh, he didn't have as many choices, <clears throat> I guess. You know what? On the phone thing, you know, it's like, I'll just, you said Apple watch. I also hate my phone and I got this to try to be off my phone. How sad is that? <laughs> I don't think that's the same thing. I think you're on, it's there more. I mean, you, I guess you can't look at it, right? Well, yeah, you can Just set pull this it, thing a little bit closer. Sure. You can set it up essentially. Um, like you can get as many or as few notifications, but I mean, you can't sit there and like scroll through fucking Instagram, right? I don't even know. I, I, I don't know if you can or not, but that like, there's no way I would put Instagram on here to see if that's even possible. <laughs> I guess it probably is. No, <laughs> it might be. Um, it wouldn't be fun. You know, it wouldn't be like, you know, yeah. on your, on your phone, but what you can, like, I could turn my phone off. And if I, if like somebody really needed to get a hold of me, 
I will still see that somebody called me or sent me a text. Okay. So and then you just speak into it to text back. Either that, or you like have the teeniest keyboard. Yeah. 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 Or if it was something important, you would turn your phone on, but yeah. you can also just ignore it. But yeah. That's like sad. When I said, like when I told Kirsten why I was getting this, she thought it was like the funniest thing. <laughs> she was like, yeah, this is absolutely not. Nothing. This is definitely not going to fix this problem for you, dude. It's just going to be around that war. I know. I've seen people talking on those. You talk to it? You can. I don't. No. I don't. Fuck, man. Technology's scary. What about what about getting people are going to start getting chips in their heads. That's then you, then you don't have to have a phone actually. It could just be in your head. I guess that'd be kind of nice. Would you go there? Probably not. I don't think I could. I don't think I could. Fuck no. I don't want anybody to know where I am. That's my, that's my problem really with the phone or like Instagram and stuff. It's like, I, I, I don't want people to know anything that's going on with me. You know, like we don't put pictures. We like purposely don't book pictures of our, uh, Lolo does sometimes she's like pr- has a private account, mm-hmm. but I never post anything about our child online. Sam, I think I've, I think I've, I've put a picture up on Instagram, but I, I mean, I've got like, you know, it's private and like, yeah, maybe, you know, a few friends follow me, but I find that it's weird. Cause imagine if you're a kid and you, you grow up and you realize that your parents have been like, without your consent, Dating all this material up. Kirsten and I talked because Kirsten, like, uh, she's going to listen to this. I know it, but she posts tons of stuff on, like, she's very active on Instagram. Yeah. Um, But, like, and that's fine for her. She's choosing to do it and she gets, she gets enjoyment and, and, and pleasure out of it. But, like, Phoebe hasn't, like, she's not deciding to have her picture put on. Yeah. I guess, I guess. I guess it's like, you know, there, there can be extremes in that, in that mindset. Like if it's just pictures of like cute shit, yeah. I think it's different than like some people are really trying to use their children as a way to obtain followers or like, you know, I, I think that people make their life, mm-hmm. they, they want to sell their life. And when they have a kid, I have friends that do this when they have a kid it's like now that's a thing now the kid isn't it now they're mom influencers so now they're like posting pictures and videos of all these things that they're doing with their kids and they're putting up promo codes and like oh his favorite snack is this and you can go here and get my day like that shit is fucked up to me because you're just monetizing your child sure and i do think there's a difference between like posting like I see, uh, I follow I follow your girl, so I, I I think that that's not obviously. You guys are completely different human beings, but yeah. like that's where it becomes weird, and that's where it's that thing. If I grew up in that environment, um, uh, hold on, just one second. Dude. Yeah, of course. I gotta pause this. All right. That was a brief intermission. I took the keys. Keys are found. You took the keys. <laughs> we're good. We're back in. Um, but yeah, we were talking about if you had grown up in that environment. I if I'd grown up in that environment. Yeah. Yeah, then it would be normal. Yeah, that's the other thing. I had another I have another friend who I was talking to. Well, and our to. kids will grow up in that. So it will seem normal. So what's your feeling about what's your feeling about uh 
the screen or like the phone. Um, like we didn't let, I didn't let my son see the, a screen until he was a year and a half, a yeah, year, maybe a year old. We're already, we're already past that. I mean, we haven't, we don't like, we don't really watch TV. Um, we both use our phones a fair bit. Uh, I would love for like, in my mind, ideal, ideally, like she, she won't have a phone until she's an adult and gets her own phone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like, we like won't 21. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like the test will be when she comes home, you know, from fucking fifth grade or whatever, like parents are giving their kids phones now. Yeah. And like all her friends have a phone and now she's asking for a phone and you know, I love her more than anything on earth. And you, you know, I, I don't know how I'm going to do at walking that line between like, uh, you know, making her happy and doing what's best for her. That's going to be, you know, a, a constant challenge. Yeah. And like what, I mean, I just feel that it's dangerous. You know, what I, I agree. Mean? Like that's what, that's well, it, like, it, it actually, it, it, it is. Yeah. Social media for girls, especially. And, and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. For fucking sure, dude. You have a, like, I really, I actually really, uh, would love to have a girl, but that's the shit that scares me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like. I'm glad that we had a girl. Yeah. Yeah. She's so calm. Like boy, <laughs> you want to swap for, for a weekend? <laughs> I'm I love my son, but I think Lolo would like to swap for right. every once in a yeah, while. Yeah, he's got to be a madman, right? He is. He is. I mean, we spend we spend a, all of our moments with. Him. She's with him all the time. She yeah. has not been away from him for a day since he's been born. Mm -hmm. He still sleeps in bed with us. Yeah, he's he's highly intelligent. We, we were talking about it the other day. It's like, because he hangs out with us so much and we don't push him in to like, how, I don't old, know. Is he, how old is he now? Two. He two. turned two on February 13th. I don't know if you have got this feeling yet that parent, there's some parents that really just want to be like parent, like the quintessential parent. Mm -hmm. So, and it, and it's like, to me, it feels like, kitschy like we gotta go and do like the song and dance bullshit and like the fucking cutesy we gotta talk to them in this very specific way yeah and like there's like the dad club and the mom club and like yeah. i just don't I, that's totally cool like they can do that to me it's just not how i, I don't see ev i don't see evolution happening really well in that setting for a young mind, I guess. I think it's kind of, I would like to draw a bridge or like, I'd like to create a, a, a way, like somewhere between how I was raised and, and that, you know what I mean? That's like yes. where I was raised, it was like, shut the fuck up and <laughs> so do what you're A little softer, a little softer than that. Way softer, <laughs> way, 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 way yeah. softer. Like, that's not what I'm meaning. Just not like, the shit that I've seen actually harm kids that I grew up with, you know, like the kids that were like too doted upon or mm -hmm. like, you know, we just don't, we don't, he's, I, I don't think he, I don't look at him like a child. I look at him like a human being. Mm -hmm. I look at him a at, 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 like a child in the sense that 
I have to provide for him and I have to give him food and I have to change his diaper and like we have to do things that will make him be able to function out in the world. But I think I look at it in a more like animalistic mm-hmm. sense for lack of a better term. Like he is a creature and that creature is on a planet and to function there's basic things that he needs to do. I'm even struggling with like fucking school, dude, like sending him into that, mm-hmm. that, um, that atmosphere. <clears throat> but so he, he is wild, but he's like, he knows what's up. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, like they, they need to be able, you, you, if you protect them too much, when you sit back, just turn it a little bit. Sure. When you, you when should you, sit, but you should, that's what I always tell people. Like, like sit back, just relax and bring it to and you. Bring it to you and just bring it to you. Yeah, because you're just gonna end up going there anyways. There you go. See, he's into it. There we go. There you go. You protect them too much, they're gonna go out in the world and just get eaten alive. Yeah. You're not gonna be able to deal with all of the stress and anxiety that is inevitably gonna come their way, and the pain and suffering. That's just like that's what I mean. That's what life is. Yeah. Constant, nonstop. Um, and yeah, you can't protect them from that. So to a certain extent, you, you, you want to like subject them to it. Right. <laughs> are, you talking about, are you talking about being your child? No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, you, uh, maybe so subject them to it. Isn't the right word, but, um, not, not like shield them from it. Yeah. Like understand that there's utility in, in the hardships that they face, even as a, as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And just let them do it. Like let them, yeah. <clears throat> let them explore, mm-hmm. let them get to the edge of like, I mean, if uh, he, for example, is really <laughs> obsessed. He's obsessed with toy story now. Like okay. we showed him toy story. Yeah. All the fucking toy stories. He has like the full kit of toys and Buzz Lightyear is like his favorite. This dude thinks he can fly. He honestly thinks he can fly. So he like gets up on things, like will climb up on the back. He's, I caught him, we have caught him several times, like on the back of the recliner with like his hands and his feet getting ready to stand up saying, I can fly. And we're <laughs> like, no, dude, you can I, I still haven't been able to get him to understand that he can't fly, you know? So we just have to watch him because he will climb all over everything. But we do let him like, climb and explore and jump off shit and fall over. And right. In the beginning, no. In the beginning, we were like, if he bumped his head, we were like, oh my God, we have to go to the, we go, what do we, we're horrible parents. We got to go to the hospital. Like, like, you know, that was what our mentality was. Now he's a little bit more durable. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, they're like little balls of love. You know, they're like little balls of, not that he's still not, but it's just like, they're so fragile and the, they seem so fragile in the yes. beginning, even though they're probably not. Yeah. You know, now you're like, this dude just bounces. I wish I was like that. Yeah. I was, uh, when we were at the hospital, I was um, relieved to watch how rough the nurses were with her. <laughs> they it was like, can, oh my God, they were just like. Firm around yeah, here? Yeah. <laughs> they were just, yeah, watching them swaddle. It was like, they're just like ripping her back and forth. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay, cool. She's like highly durable. And that wasn't what I did. I was like can you guys be a little bit more fucking gentle? I was, that's not how I took it. I was like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Calm down. <laughs> Put that baby down. It is wild, man. I mean, this is a crit. Oh, but speaking of the screens, sorry. Cause I wanted to say this. Yeah. Cause we haven't like, she's 
four and a half months old. So she's not like, she's just like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's not quite a human yet. She's not like quite there. But anytime, like we don't watch much TV, but if the TV gets turned on and her face goes by it, it's insane. Dude. Or the phone, if her face is like anywhere near it, Mm-hmm. It's like a magnet. Yeah, it's fucking wild, huh? It's crazy. Did you have TV? When you were a kid growing up, did you have TV in the house? Yeah, we didn't have cable, but we had, you know, like a a television set, a VCR, yeah, and rabbit ears. And what was your relationship with that thing? I watched a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah, especially movies. Yeah. Um, I didn't have the, you know, my parents were split up. Um, I didn't have the best relationship with either of them. Yeah. Uh, not terrible by any means, but just like not super close. And we didn't like chill a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely would escape and watch, you know, the VHS types we had yeah. over and over and over again. Um, the Simpsons was like huge. Watched tons of Simpsons. Yeah. Uh, so I watched a fair bit of TV. It was the same thing for me. That thing was like my my friend. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was at when I was at home, that was like where I wanted to be. I I try to be out of the house as much as possible, but like, you know, when I was at home, that's where I was too. And that's the other thing. I didn't really play sports. Yeah, I was a bit of a late bloomer. I didn't like. I just I was like tall and lanky and gangly and like a bit uncoordinated and mm-hmm. so yeah, books and TV and movies. Yeah, and books. Yeah. It was the same. But the crazy thing is, I don't really think that that. I don't really think that that affected me negatively. Like, do you feel, uh, and it probably also has to do with like the format in which mm-hmm. it was given to us, you know? Right. It wasn't as easy. Yeah. You know, it wasn't as easy. And like, it wasn't, I find that the problem now, even, and this is not just in children, this is myself. I noticed this just the format in which it's being delivered. It's like fast and it's like, quick it auto like if you're watching something on netflix it like auto generates into the next episode Mm -hmm. so even if i like fall asleep watching something i wake up and instead of going to bed i'm like oh fuck what did i miss let me fucking go back and Mm -hmm. and and, um so i think it's that and like yeah and the ease of going and having a million things at your disposal Mm -hmm. and i don't think necessarily the content is the issue i think like psychologically that format of understanding you can have what you want when you want it at any time is probably the issue. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the the thing I struggle with the most. It's just, I kind of wish it was like when your grandfather fucking went and worked at the Chrysler plant, you know what I mean? As far as, yeah, for, for sure. I, I understand that. Um, at the same time, yeah, I don't want to like become a, total Luddite. Yeah. <laughs> um, but social media definitely, you know, I find it skeevy. It's like, there's something about it that doesn't, I don't it, know, like sends my hair on end and don't get me wrong. I, I'm a participant. Yeah. I'm on there. I'm, yeah. scro- I'm scrolling. I'm not like, yeah, but, um, it doesn't feel No, it feels fucking weird. I I didn't, I was a late adopter of any of those things. I think I had a MySpace when MySpace came out and like didn't do anything with it Mm because it didn't really function. Like I didn't know how to fucking function it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but I didn't, I was like holding out forever on Facebook and then I got it. And the same with Instagram, like I didn't really start. So when I started my, when I, I used to post some shit on there. Um, but then when I started my restaurant in Mexico, I was having conversations with people and they were like, you really have to make, you have to like, you are, and it's true. Like I am my business Yep. because it's, it is just me. And so just saying like, you have to put yourself out there. That's when I started, like I deleted a bunch of old shit and started just posting like pictures that other people, you know, Mm -hmm. photographers had taken when I brought them down to, to do these things. Um, but I feel you, dude, I, I, it's, it's hard to look at, like, it's hard to look at people who are selling, I guess that's the skeevy part of it. It's like, they're just selling themselves. It's that's, that's what it is. And maybe the, and maybe for me, the word like worse than the people selling themselves is that people buy that shit or buy into that shit. Yeah. Do you ever have, do you ever have the feeling like, sorry, not to cut you off, but do you ever have the feeling that like, you work so hard for what you do, you know, like for your restaurant, for example. And there's definitely people who have like a shittier product and a shittier idea and don't do half the amount of work that you do that make more money because they like post some fucking videos online of them making whatever fucking media tacos or whatever the fuck they've decided that they're going to make for the day. Does that agitate you? No, 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 not really. I don't give it too much thought. I think my like, I've got a fairly large imposter complex. (laughs) (laughs) Good. (laughs) So if anything, I I feel self-conscious that, that like we're that, like there are people better than us thinking that about us. If anything, that that's where my mind would be, I guess. I mean, I I guess it's good to keep your, keep your ego in check on it. You guys definitely are not, I mean, you, you definitely have a very unique, um, and I, and I thought that from the first time that I heard about your taco truck and talked to you, I was like, you know, it was funny because I was in this position where I was coming from California and I was in yeah. working inside a structure of a place that was claiming to do something that they weren't doing. And I was probably a person who had a pretty good perspective on that having come from, you know, Southern California and seeing what it really was. Yeah. Um, and then you guys just kind of embracing who you are. Yeah, right. I appreciate that. How did that pro- how did how did the how did that project come to fruition cuz you were bartending and yeah. making tacos or um yeah, I mean it it was kind of it was a bit of an accident. Um <laughs> I was uh managing a bar where Pascolo um well was yeah, that basement yeah. location. What was that place called? It was called Nika. Well, so I was working at a restaurant called Three Tomatoes. The owners decided to rebrand that place. Three Tomatoes had been on Church Street for like... Since I was a kid. Yeah, forever. Um, I think like it had started to become stale. Sales were sort of dropping. They brought in a consultant. He was like, we need to do a full rebrand. Um, in fact, I think actually the consultant, uh, his name was Ryan Schmidtberger. The dude, was, he was fucking awesome. I think what he actually wanted them to do was like close and open a new restaurant. Mm. They decided on a, a more of like a rebrand, closed, did a little bit of remodeling and then reopened as Nika, new chef, like new logo, new menu. And then within like eight months, they had sold it to the farmhouse. And that, like I felt 
so I was working at Three Tomatoes. I was a bartender. When they were doing this, changing the restaurant over, they asked me to manage the bar. I kind of like threw myself into that. I really, I, I believed in, I thought, like at least when we first opened, it was good. And I felt really good about it. And then I just watched uh, the owners kind of like give up on it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And then and then they sold it. And so I lost my job and was just pretty burnt out on the industry. And my friend Shane, who I had met bartending at Nika, he had the, I mean, it's such a weird business. Uh, he, he subcontracted for Coca-Cola moving coolers. <laughs> He's an amazing dude. He called me the day after our last shift and was like, hey, if you need a job, I can, I can pay you cash. Um, and you can help me move coolers. So we did that. And um, so just like talking, like moving coolers around central and northeast Vermont and just talking, you know, two bartenders inevitably are talking about like, oh, you know, it would be sick. Oh, you know, it would be sick. Yeah. So yeah, a, like a taco shop, just like a simple pared down taco shop, like a real taco shop. Yeah. Um. And he had some money saved up, so we. Uh, I was working at Arts Riot. They kind of like helped incubate the business. They like gave us kitchen space um, for free. Uh, for well, not for free. Like the agreement was like a percentage of sales at any event they sent us. So like if people people would contact them for catering because mm-hmm. they ran the truck stop. Yep. Um, and so any business they sent our way. Um, they would get a cut of. So Shane built the cart and that's kind of how it started. We did, we did the truck stop that first summer in 2014. And then the next summer we got a spot on church street. Um, and then that next summer we built two brand new carts, like one big one for events and a smaller one for church street. And then it was like going into it, we were naive and, it was like, we're going to just like, we're going to work, make so much money every summer that we're just going to travel or do whatever <laughs> the fuck we want in the wintertime. <laughs> the dream. And it was pretty like, I mean, very quickly evident that it wasn't going to happen. And so I would bust my ass in the summer running the the stand or the stands and then try to find a job bartending in the winter which the first couple of years wasn't that bad because Arts Riot was still available to me. Mm-hmm. But then I did find myself, you know, early 30s, like looking for a bartending job, telling these people, like, I need a job for like six months. <laughs> so it was, I didn't exactly have like um, my pick, you know. Yeah, yeah, I kind of yeah. had to take what, what was available. T-Rugs Tavern. <laughs> I wish. I think they make a lot of money. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, so it was like, we either need to take this, like build out like a catering, full-fledged catering business of which Taco Gordo is a piece mm-hmm. or open a restaurant. And originally it was like, we're never going to open a restaurant. Yeah. So it came full all the way around. Yeah. And then, I mean, the space we that became available because amazing. Yeah. So 
yeah, I don't have any, I don't have any regrets about that, particularly considering where we landed. Um, and the landscape when you guys started was like, was El Cortillo already happening when you, when you started the oh, for sure. taco stand? Yeah. Yeah. And there was like this old, I don't know if this, you remember this, but there's a place called like Tortilla Flats. It's where Bluebird Barbecue used to be. Yeah. Was that around when you guys started? No, it, that was here when I first moved here. Yeah. In 2003. I don't know when they closed. And had you gone to Mexico? Like, did you guys go to Mexico or had you been to Mexico or? Not when we started. Yeah. No, I went, no, my, my, my connection to the food was more, um, growing up. There's yeah. like a neighborhood actually right, right near where my grandfather, where my mom grew up, my grandfather's house called Mexican village. Um, so that I always loved it. And like once there was this place called Evie's and like once a month, my dad would come home with a big, like greasy brown paper bag of tamales. Sick. Yeah. I mean, so that, and then having brothers that lived in California, mm-hmm. visiting them. And then my sister went to Arizona state. So Phoenix Southwest. Yeah. Um. So that was my main connection. And then after opening it have since yet. Yeah, been to Mexico, went to Oaxaca. Yeah, yeah. And then last year we went to um Mexico City. Yeah. Um there is that that is like the the funny thing about <clears throat> the places that exist in Vermont. Like you kind of grew up around the culture, at least, I guess, right? Like the when I was a kid, the only place in Vermont that had Mexican food was that place Tortilla Flats. Right. Or Taco Bell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And I so, mean, that, that was definitely something that was like when I'm moving here, that was something that was like very clearly missing. Yeah. And I think a lot of people had that same feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Right? That, yeah, for that sure. That came here from somewhere else or grew up here and spent any time like out West and then come back and they're like, this is very clearly like a gaping hole. And it's kind of crazy that we don't even have, like there is, after talking to the girl from Migrant Justice, there is a lot of, uh, now there are farm work, they come here for farm work and I guess that's why they're not doing anything else. But you know the place Paisanos on Main Street? Those are Oaxacan dudes. It's owned by Oaxacan dudes. I hear they've got like some of the best tacos in town. They sell tacos? Yeah, they sell tacos. I did not know that. Or they did. Okay. There was a period. But so in most places around the country, there is some Latin American cuisine from immigrant, or there's just like immigrant cu- cuisine in general. I, I don't, I think there's a few places now that have, um, that there's like uh, Little Morocco, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. that Kismayo Kitchen. Mm-hmm. I don't know who owns it, but I heard it's like, I don't know exactly what the concept is, but it's something. Um, but I, but I think that in general, what we lack in this city or state, if you want to call it that, is that like migrant, um, that migrant food culture, migrant culture in general. Right. It's one of the things that the, the girl was saying, um, the, that I was speaking with the other day was like, there's no community here. Like there is in other cities, like in other cities or towns or States, you would go and there'd be like a Mexican market right. or like a Mexican community center. Right. We don't have any of that. Right. The uh, It's happened for the, um, the Vietnamese migrants, right. Cause they've been here. They've been here. I guess maybe it's, maybe it's like a, 
period of time thing because mm-hmm. we have you know a few Asian markets and you know some Vietnamese restaurants. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. We don't. There isn't. And there's like a. So what I was saying is that there's a lot of there's a lot of people from Mexico here and they're not making Mexican food. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be gangster. It would be. But I think it's because they move here to work on the farms. And then to get out of that system is nearly fucking impossible. Right. And are they coming? So you said that the the guy died. Like, was he here? He was uh, here working. Legally? No. Right. So there's no protection yeah. for them. So that's, you know, hence why they organized to. Yeah. And also the rules, like, you know, in 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 like using Southern California as an example, and I'm not sure how it was in Michigan, but like they could come and set up a cart or like push a, people have like shopping carts mm-hmm. with fucking sheet pans on top that they cook the shit on. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can do that kind of stuff here. You can't really do that. No, <laughs> no certainly not. You get a fruit fly. They would, um, yeah, they would, they would shut that down. Yeah. And I, and I, it's crazy because I think that people would, there is definitely people that say that they would like to see culture here, but this isn't exactly the most welcoming place to culture. For sure not. I think that, I don't understand it. I mean, I think it's, I think we're still connected to, I think still to this day, we're still connected to some of the backwoods mentality that existed here from the beginning. Yeah. What did you move here for when you moved here in 2000? You said 2003? 2003. Girlfriend. Girlfriend. Um, yeah, my girlfriend was um, transferring to Champlain College. And... Um, yeah, my time in Michigan was, you know, definitely time, time to move on. Uh, my friends, I felt like that, you know, kind of like wayward, like not really going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and was like feeling like I was losing connection to them and just ready for something new. I still remember driving, like driving here through upstate New York and just being <laughs> like, holy fuck, like this is, and especially from where I was coming from. Like, yeah. This is incredible and what was the feeling when you came here did you feel like a loss of culture kind of because you were because it doesn't exist here the same way it does there yeah i mean there's definitely things i missed for sure um but there was more there was i got i I was definitely more focused on like what there was like and what how amazing like i think burlington's an amazing place it is mid like there's I mean, you could you could go on and on about what what you know what it's missing, but in a lot of ways, it's an amazing place, a great place to live. Um, and I think there's a there's a it's lacking a variety of cultures. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But I think like uh, Vermont culture, like I think what I find endearing about it is that it's very like blue collar, working class, um, entrepreneurial, um, like do it yourself. Uh, which is, I think, valuable, and I find that I find that endearing. Um, there are other things that that are, are less of it. Yeah, and when you came, <clears throat> because so, like, just all of the things we've been talking about about you and your migration here, and your how Taco Gordo came to be. When I came back home in 2015, that was the first time I had been like home to live. Mm-hmm. I was only here for like six months. And when I came back in Arts Riot, those guys, I met those guys from Arts Riot and I started hearing about what was going on there. And I met George eventually. It seemed like they were the guys who were kind of like punching culture, like 
punching a place or a community of culture into the next generation. Um, and, and I guess that you guys had all, like everybody that was involved in that movement had been here and kind of like ruminating on this idea of how that culture turns into something that's um, something that's generational maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, you, do you feel that that was like a genesis here? Like that whole movement of like arts, like that time in 2015. I don't know when Arts Riot opened. It was probably pre 2015, but I think it had been here, been around a little. Yeah, while. probably 2013 or 2014. Yeah, but was that like a like a pivotal time? Do you think that there for was sure. like a genesis in that moment? Yeah, that place was really really special for a short period of time. Yeah, um, it's why I can't really. Well, I guess it's not open anymore. But I once it got sold, I, I could never have gone back. Cause it was so, it was for all its faults and, and, uh, you know, there were, there were plenty of them. It was special. Cause it was like, yeah, it was these, this group of people, young people with this massive space kind of letting are open to letting just about anything go down. Yeah. You know, like as long as it'll bring people in and they'll have a good time. Um, let's do it. They, they're just like so open to creativity and, you know, letting us, for example, you know, give, just giving us kitchen space. Yeah. A commercial kitchen in which to produce food and then a venue in, in which to, to sell it and build a following. Yeah. That we could, that we could build a business on. And I think at the time, like for me, I came back, like the food scene was still stale. And I think they fostered some revolution in food also. I know that they had this, like in the beginning, it was kind of like a rotating mm-hmm. chef situation in the kitchen. Dude. Right. Yeah, it was a and, mess. Then, and then, and then George came on board and I think he yeah. did a really good job of like yeah. cementing new ideals in in the food ways in Vermont. Yeah. He, or in Burlington, I should say Burlington. I should say like the culture here. Yeah. He's, He's like, in a lot of ways, one of the hardest working, most talented people I ever worked with. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was fucking. He had a lot of energy. A lot of energy. Yeah. I'm sure he still has a lot of energy, but. Do you stay in touch with him? Not really. On Instagram a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Now he's like just fucking swinging baseball bats and remodeling homes or something like that. Yeah. Sort of like that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's smart. He retired from. (laughs) you <laughs> retired how old was he when you retired fucking 35 years old he retired yeah, yeah um but yeah there was you know yeah like giving and taking a chance on him when they did was you know it was it was a risk and um they he, fucking won he didn't exactly have his shit together yeah he was putting he was getting his shit together but he didn't exactly have his shit together um he had all the talent yeah yeah he didn't he's been pretty open with me about the story yeah you know like he told me because we were hanging out a little bit when i was here and he told me like he was sober and he had like worked in every kitchen here and fucked up every Mm -hmm. job that he had and and then he just like flipped a switch and went in the other other direction yeah and he was he was like making all of the bread he was fucking Mm -hmm. hands-on in the kitchen nonstop Mm -hmm. all day every day and I think that he's a unique person in the sense that he probably knew that he was retiring after, I think that he knew that that was it. You know what I mean? He, he told me that he, I, I talked to him after he left Arts Riot and he's like, I'm fucking done cooking, dude. He's yeah. like, I don't ever want to do that again. Yeah. But I think somehow he knew it. Like that's the, that's at least the energy that I got when he put out the work that he was putting out, you know? 
I think you put out a, a pretty cool body of work. And it is unfortunate that that play, I don't, I have no idea um, about what happened there, but I do think it's unfortunate that, that that fell apart. But again, I think all great things. Yeah. Especially like can be a blip. The things that made it great, like that it's you know, young people um, open to like without, I mean, they, I guess in certain sense they had a clear vision, but the 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 vision was more of like like a a, a rough outline of what they wanted to achieve or like wanted the things that they did to achieve, but the actual things they were doing were very loose. Yeah, like like having a kitchen collective. Well, starting first as a dumpling shop and then pivoting to like we're going to do this kitchen collective thing. Which, yeah, I mean, was just like a mess in terms of like managing it. And then switching to, okay, one chef, one menu, George. Um, so like something like that, you know, inevitably I think is going to sort of fall apart. Like Felix went off and started pursuing something else. And then PJ and George were pretty much just running it and... Yeah, it was a lot. So I think, you know, both of them sort of felt like it's time to move on to something else. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was kind of like a collect, like a, an art collective. It was just like a collective of human beings who were like, let's have fun and do cool shit. Yes. And, and like of that, like I met like so many talented people, Rob, who, you know, managed like book the music and managed like the music side of things and, and would do truck stop. Um, like the people that they had running the place um, were just, yeah. Great. Are all those people still in, like the majority of them still in Burlington? I know Rob just moved to Maine um, with his girlfriend, Charlotte, and Kelly, who is the GM of the restaurant. I don't know what she's doing for work, but she had a kid. I don't know if she's working in like food and beverage anymore. PJ is working for his dad. Like as a mortgage broker or something. Yeah, I, I tell him. And he just had a second kid. Or yeah. well, not just. <clears throat> I've seen him around town, but I didn't yeah. know if he would remember me or not. Yeah. So I just like didn't say hello. Yeah. But I mean, I think that you, in a completely different vein, I think that what you guys have built over on your side of town is, I mean, it was like going back to the community idea. Like you guys do, you have, what you've built is a community Thank you. Center. Is that like what the I idealism was from the beginning? Like there's going to be a, a neighborhood spot. For sure. Yeah. Neighborhood spot. Like just pull, pull this a little bit. Sorry. Yeah. If you yeah, turn like, it just a little bit like this. There you go. Thank you. Perfect. You're dialed. Is now. this going to get cut out? This no. little piece? No, 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 no. I was talking about the moving of the microphone. No, it's all there. None, nothing gets cut out. Okay. <laughs> this is a real conversation, <laughs> dog. Um, yeah, like institution, right? Like the dream is that there's kids, like there's people who are bringing their kids there today. They come like once a month or whatever as a family. Yeah. And then those kids grow up and whether it's they're at UVM or they like go off to college and they come back, and bring friends, they they come back, they have kids, they bring their kids. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because um, that's like, that was big for me. That was like, I said that my parents and I didn't like chill a lot. Yeah. Going out to eat was 
special. That was like a time that we did spend together. And we, we went out to eat a fair bit. Mm-hmm. And we had our spots, particularly with my dad. Like, And on the weekends that we would be with my dad, we'd hit our spots. Like the slider spot. Um, you know, our favorite Coney Island. Coney Island's like a thing. It's like, um, what would be an equivalent um, in another place? Like, I guess maybe like pizza in New York. Yeah. Like there's Coney Islands everywhere in Michigan. And it's essentially like a Greek diner. But in a Coney Island is a chili dog. Yep. And they all have chili dogs, but they also have like Greek salads. And like, but they're called Coney Islands? They call them Coney Islands. Here it's a Michigan dog. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. It's like kind of, you know, it's the same thing. Yeah, that's what I was called in the mid, like in Colorado. A Michigan dog? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the, and like some of the places are called Coney Islands and there's like a chain, you know, different chains of Coney Islands and there's like independently owned Coney Islands. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we had our spots and it was always just like, I don't know, it was fun and it was like a, it felt special. And so being able to, like for me, being able to recreate that for other people yeah yeah it was definitely that's cool that's an interesting perspective i've kind of been like ruminating you know what my trajectory here is and one of the things i thought about was a diner because my i think i've told you about this like uh because my grandfather and i used to go out yeah every friday before school um to a diner to a local diner in town and they're all gone Mm -hmm. now they're all you know henry's is up for sale i saw that um do you have a spare 275k <laughs> definitely not dude absolutely not um and i don't know if i want to buy two hundred seventy-five thousand dollar problem <laughs> i mean i love that place but like right if it doesn't come with the property it i've looked in that kitchen it looks like it's probably does it look bit, like i think it would look and henry i didn't know i didn't go in i oh, just mean, i've looked okay. from like the count you look from the counter i'm sure yeah and like it's probably a bit rusty back there you just see the people working they probably don't you, i'm not I, even saying it's dirty but i just like how old is the equipment that's what i'm saying yeah and how and the infrastructure like when was that fucking hvac system put in there talk you know fucking 1935 um i it, it's unfortunate because coming back me and my wife have been going there um like all all the time it was penny Cluser there there's another one that's gone right another another gem of the community um and i think it is the onus is kind of on this generation to build something like that but the problem like our generation Mm -hmm. specifically but i think what i see is the same as i see in a lot of major cities that don't have and and maybe that like coney island culture came from immigrants from Mm -hmm. like needing to commune and be together. Mm-hmm. I think our society has become so individualistic and we don't feel that we need to rely on anybody more, that we don't need those community meeting places. Mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of young restaurateurs or fucking entrepreneurs or whatever you want to call them are building these businesses for their success, not for really anything other than that. I don't, I don't think that they look at it through the same lens that you just explained. Like, you know, I want a place where my kid is going to go and where his kid is going to go. And yeah. Maybe it's never, maybe that, maybe the same thing is going to happen to that place when you pass, but at least you're curating that in your life and maybe you'll be able to pass that on to your child. I don't know. I don't really feel, I mean, do you feel that there's new, any new places that are doing that? We don't have to, we don't have to, we don't have to, you know, call anybody out, but like, I just don't see it, I guess. No. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't know for sure. Not, 
and especially not, I mean, there's here and there you see deaf, there's definitely some, and it's very heartening to see like younger people from the industry, you know, from like the, the front lines, right. The, uh, whether cooks or, or front of house workers opening up, um, places and there's a, there's a handful of them. Um, but, but not a ton. Yeah. It's more like, um, like well-funded groups of people opening up restaurant concepts. Yeah. And then you get, you get what you get, which is whatever it can be. It can be totally fine. In fact, it can be excellent uh, and you can go there and have a great time. But um, I don't know. There's not like that. Again, like there's something about like a place that's just owner operated. It's, it's what the person does for a living. Yeah. Um, I think that's the most important fundamental element to a restaurant being successful to a, 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 I should even say a service industry business being successful is that, uh, I noticed this a lot when I was in Los Angeles doing consulting or working in places, we'd always have these conversations about why, about like how we make it more viable or more profitable and always no one questions like, well, what about the fucking dude who's just comes to these meetings once a week and collects money because he's the owner that put into it or because they took a fucking fat investment instead of a loan, they're not trying to work off. Um, that's the heart of the business, mm-hmm. you know, that literally, and I, and I see so many people, um, I don't even know if they're grappling with it, but just not embodying the business and not telling the story from their standpoint. Um, but yeah, I think absolutely you have to be there. You have to be there and functioning it. And then you get this, like, I think that what you're talking about, what you were saying when you were saying like these restaurants from investors or restaurant groups or whatever it is, there's just like, a, it's plastic. Mm-hmm. There's like a plasticity to it that it feels forced. It doesn't feel like when you walk into Taco Goro, you like, I know what the fuck I'm, I know what's going on here. And I feel like I want to hang out. And there's probably people that don't want to go in there, you know, For sure. because, because of the vibe. Mm-hmm. But I think that I would love to see it all like everywhere. The landscape go back to uh, everyone just embodying them themselves in their place, mm-hmm. you know, just expressing themselves kind of. I think we, I think there's a few places that are starting to, that, that are trying to do that. There's like the, we went to this sandwich shop. I forgot what it's called. That's like mama Juana or something. Am I getting oh, that wrong? Um, um, Poppy is the sandwich shop. Yeah. And then the, the other place there. So like the cafe mama. Yeah. yeah. So like that sandwich shop feels that way to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I just question uh, a lot of times, even with that stuff, I question the longev- longevity of like the age of some of the people that are starting these businesses. It's like, you got, you know, I'm, I was 33 when I opened a restaurant and there was purpose behind that. Like mm-hmm. it was that I wanted to make sure, uh, that I knew what I was doing and that I knew that that was the only thing I was going to do. Um, and I think when you start something young, you and it ends up evolving into the plastic business structure where like, 
I'm, I started this when I was 25 and I'm 35 now and I've just been stuck in this fucking sandwich shop and now I want to go see the world. So I'm going to put somebody else in place and then it's going to lose that element of like you being there. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, I think, I think maybe like a way to way, a way around that. And this is something that we're like a direction we're going at Gordo is, um, the people that are running it sort of um, giving them not like strict ownership equity, but um, well, so what we do at, at Gordo is, is uh, profit sharing yep. with our management. So what, and I, and the idea behind it, and I think it, it, it I do believe that it's bearing, um, it, it, it's, it's having the effect, the intended effect is that the, the, the people that are running it when I'm not there feel like it's theirs. Yeah. Um, which is cool. And that's something you, again, you're not going to see that. Like you, like you said, like, um, a restaurant that's open by like a restaurant group with a bunch of investors, very expensive to open and some amount of money is going to some folks that are never, they're never pulling a shift. Yeah. You know, if like there, if there isn't a dishwasher on a Tuesday night, they're not it's like, yo, let me jump in <laughs> let me fucking drive in. Right? From- um, so, you know, and then not, not, not to mention like the debt service for just the fit up of, you know, this beautiful space where everything's new. Mm hmm. Um, you know, is there, is there the, the ability to really even do that? So, um, we're lucky in that respect in that there's, um, we did have, we had a little bit of investment, uh, but I still, I own most of the business. So I have a lot of flexibility in terms of being able to, to offer that. Whereas, you know, certainly like some of these bigger places, I don't know that they, that they really can unless the investors are willing to. Yeah. So I think that, I think that that model or that concept works and has historically worked and like only historically worked when, um, they choose a chef, they choose a concept and the chef essentially, like this is what we've seen happen Mm -hmm. throughout history, right? Is the chef is the restaurant. You know, right. so if they're in, uh, and a lot, this is how it works in, in major cities. Like a lot of these guys who are opening restaurants find a chef. They're like, we want to open a restaurant mm-hmm. and they find a chef and they say, okay, you're our chef. What is the concept going to be? We're going to invest in them. We're, you're, no one's even going to know that we exist here. The problem with that system is that everybody inside that system, at least from my perspective, is that the majority of the time, everybody inside that system knows that that chef only has a specific amount of power. And also that chef probably feels like, they're not going to be there forever. Like they're eventually going to break off and do their own thing. Do their own thing, right? Yeah. Like you want to be free from that. It does not a good feeling to like have someone put millions of dollars into a place that you will never be able to be equal in ownership to them, right? Of course not. And um, so then what happens is it like- It would be different if you were an equal, right? Yeah, yeah, If they're yeah. like, you know, like there are, and, you know, we're thinking about, like we're thinking about, some other 
enterprises that we might open, right? And I think that there are potentially really cool ways to um, take somebody, like in this instance, like, yeah, maybe you invest the money and you you are owning like most of the restaurant. You have somebody running it. They own, you're giving them, like this chef in your example, right? Yeah. They have some equity piece. But maybe over time, like the investor's equity piece diminishes diminishes and the the chef's rises so maybe you maybe there are cool ways where you could um keep that person there like for the life of the restaurant right yeah by giving them like actual real ownership so this is like the concept that i uh opened in in puerto escondido and this was my theory i had done before I moved to Mexico, I did consulting on a fast casual chain that, um, was a franchise. And I watched people come in. Like I came in to do consulting. I was only there for three months. Cause I realized that they were just fucking destroying people's lives for they take investment from somebody. I mean, when you buy into a franchise, you buy the image that's the same everywhere around the country. You mm-hmm. buy the food cost, you buy all of the mess essentially. And there's nothing you can do to change it. And so, um, when I, when I closed Pirata and we were going to move to a new place in, in Puerto Escondido and then COVID happened and exploded, I was like, I don't want to leave this girl who was working for me with nothing. And so the concept of Milpa was like, it's a molino. It's like we were grinding masa. We are buying local corn, working with the community. She was a local person, so a, a, a local girl. Um, so she knew a lot of that community and we put it in Centro on purpose, like not in the touristy area. And the concept was that we invest all of the money up front and we're 90% owners and she's 10% owner. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the initial investment is paid back, we flip and we're 10% owner and she's 90% owner. Exactly. Yeah. Some, yeah. And I think that that model works and I don't like, so <clears throat> to me, it's like a, it's almost like an imperialist idealism that because you invested this money first, you have a right, even after the money's paid back to an equal share, even though you're not the worker, you know? Yeah. Call, call, you know, socialist idealism. I'm an anarchist, dude. So that's how I think, like, once that money's paid back, what are you doing? Are you still giving an equal amount? Because you definitely didn't do an equal amount to get that money back. Right. You definitely worked at some point in your life to gain the money that went into it. Right. But we can't really meter that. I definitely think, and I would love to do the same thing. Like I would like to get to a point in, in here in the United States where I could do something similar in Mexico, there's a low barrier of entry. And I would really like, we will go back and we will relaunch that project. And I've thought about doing that here actually, um, because they're low, like that's how I think those fast casual restaurants should function. Somebody should invest in the person opening it. Um, and then once it's paid back, it's that person's thing to do what they will with it. Right. Right. Um, if you've made your money back, then you've done essentially what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I think there's, I, I think that's a great model, Yeah, you know, and it doesn't have to be 90, 10, it could be whatever number sure. that you calculate. And I think in your that head. if you're, like you said, like if, if you've like the people that invested in, in Taco Gordo, like these are successful people that, that worked hard made money and then had money capital to invest and they risked their money. Yeah. So good on them. And they'll, they'll 
have a piece of Taco Gordo in perpetuity. And I, I have no problem with that. Um, but like, it's gotta be, it can't be too much. It can't be so much that the business is then sort of like hamstrung and doesn't have a ton of flexibility, um, to take the equity that the, the operator has and potentially give it to other people yeah. that might be running it or, or managing it or or whatnot. Yeah. And I think, and I, I don't know how much of that idealism is tied to, um, actually, because those people that are investing that amount of money, probably once they get their investment back, weren't people in the beginning that really needed that much money. I'm sure there is people that invest in, if you invest in a fucking restaurant to make money as just an investor, you're an idiot. I would agree. <laughs> and would so agree. usually the people that are investing in these businesses, like have other things going on and have yes. money. And so, and I think in the case of the people that invested in Gordo, they it's, it's yes. I don't think it was, they could have taken that money and made way more doing other things with it. And these are smart people who know that they could have done that. So I think they were also, these are folks that are, um, they're interested in seeing Burlington and just Vermont in general um, become better. Yeah. Uh, or um, being part of people opening business and th and thriving. So I think they're like, that's part of the equation for, for them. Yeah. And I do think that's a unique thing about, about Burlington or the scene here is that there's people like that that exist, but then there's, there's also people that are, um, not interested in the money, but they're interested in the control. Meaning that like the only reason that they won't give up a percentage to a worker or a chef or a manager is because they want to be able to make the decisions. They right. want to be able to say, we're not doing this or we are doing this. Because what I noticed a lot, especially doing consulting and opening restaurants for people is a lot of people that open restaurants that have no experience, they want they have a, a very specific idea about what they want and what they want it for is to bring their homies to and be like look this is my restaurant and they want to be served the way they cannot be served in a, any other restaurant so a lot of people who invest in restaurants are like don't i had this all the time i would sit down to people and they'd be like with people and they'd be like okay so we just traveled around and we went to all these great restaurants and here's all of our ideas together and we want this from this restaurant and this from this restaurant and this from this restaurant and i would say that's not possible and they're like i've they've li i've literally had this said to me before why can't we have everything we want in one place like because it would fucking exist otherwise right. so the reason those people are starting those projects a lot of people are starting those projects is like to be the cool guy that has a place to hang out and then also be able to go in and have people dote on you yeah which you know are you've worked in the restaurant you didn't just open a restaurant you worked in it so mm -hmm. you probably felt the same thing when a fucking owner comes in who's like not really there in operations everybody's on fucking edge, making mm -hmm. sure that they're happy. And it's like, what? Fuck this guy. Everybody's at the end, you're like, fuck this guy. He doesn't do a goddamn thing. And every time he comes, he wants fucking his water fucking right. 43 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, or whatever it is. And, and, um, that maybe, maybe that's like the working class fucking hero. Maybe that's what, what, what we're still living, you know? you we might be able to change that you know guys like you might be able to change that guys like arts riot kind of were trying to find out where that where that where that line 
is yeah. drawn, I guess. I mean, they certainly weren't interested in sharing, you know, just flexing on people. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, where do you see, you know, how do you see you're getting old? <laughs> 40's the new 20. But um, how do you see the next five years playing out for you? Um, because you're you're super involved right now. Like you're an employee. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you like it? Do you love, do you, I mean, we, you had stated earlier that you're like, I don't, I'm not in love with it, but I like find happiness in it. Like, do you, but do you love the fact that you have your place that you can go to and that you can work and the employees sure. and all that, like you like that process? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And like, I, I'm more interested in different things today than I was when we started in 2014, when it was just the food. Yeah. Um, like I'm more interested in like what we're talking about now. Um, how can, how can the business itself evolve? How can we do things a little bit differently? Um, how can like these people that I work with, I, I, I love them. Like I consider them friends and, and family and like, can we, can we, take the success we've had and um, leverage it to offer opportunities. So like, for example, we, um, we opened a creamy stand. We want to open, we want to, you know, keep the creamy stand, but open like a full fledged legit ice cream parlor. Mm-hmm. And the person who currently runs the creamy stand, it would be his. Yeah. Um, and again, like, whether it's me or whether it's uh, the Taco Gordo would own some part of it because we would help make it happen. But over time, I would see that becoming like something very small. Yeah. We're like something that isn't like insignificant, but like remind kind of reminds me or reminds us that like we help make this happen. Yeah. Um, that that interests me far more right now. Or that's where like the passion that I have for the project right now is. Yeah, I think it's important to <clears throat> I think it's an important piece to the to the puzzle of curating a community and a future for this place also is like, you know, I've been having this conversation with with some people that I've been working with here saying, you know, now I like doing my shit on my own, but I have a set of skills that can be beneficial to people and Mm -hmm. the success of, you know, if I get into a position where I'm working on a project that involves employees, I'm not looking at it for me. I'm not looking at it. Of course it needs to make fiscal sense, but I'm not looking at it specifically from that angle. I'm looking at, looking at it as we can do something great Mm -hmm. and we can prove, we can prove, bring a new level or bring a new, look at something, but then the people that work for us, we can affect them and then they can go out on their own and they can do their own things. And really the marker of our success will be their success in the future. And, um, but it's definitely interesting having this conversation with you and just like thinking about the whole puzzle. It's like the, the, the bigger Genesis is giving them that dream, Mm -hmm. like being part of giving them that dream. And I know it's been done in the past. It's definitely been done in the past in some shitty ways where like you just want to keep 
that control over that employee. So yeah. it's definitely going to be interesting to see how that unfolds, you know? Right. Well that, yeah. Right. The, Cause it's not new, right? Like, uh, um, I remember like, I think, I think it was David Chang talking about this where like one of the reasons some of these, uh, some places open another restaurant is just to keep that talented person that yeah. they currently have mm-hmm. just to like sort of give them, um, like take that sous chef and, and be able to make them a chef at this new, at this new establishment, but something more than that, like where it's not just, it's not just a decent job, but like something that's actually, yeah, that they can, that they can call their own. Yeah. And be interested in, because not only is it to keep the talent, but it's also to build the family tree. I mean, if you look at the lineage of, of chefs around the world, this is specifically why I never went to a well-known chef to work because you always live under that cloud and they make it. I think that a lot of egoic chefs make it a point to do that. You know, Charlie Trotter was a good example of that. Like the people that came from there were Charlie Trotter's people, you know, he was a great chef and it and did excellent things, but you know, there's, there's flavors of that all around the world. Rene Redzepi has done that quietly being behind some projects of people that he's carried on. And he's widely known as someone who has that mentality mm-hmm. that he wants. And he's involved in the control of that situation. So I think a key to making that situation work is like, okay, I'm going to give you this place and this is going to be yours. That means that when we sit down and have a meeting about the functionality of this place, me as a partner, I'm just sitting here and helping solve problems, you know? Right. And that's where that model came in my mind. Like the 90-10 model was like all control, like I'll be part of this to build. And then when you're uh, the majority owner or when it becomes your place completely, I'm just going to say, how can I help you? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and exactly. not try to dictate what's going on there. Mm-hmm. If we have a concept and an idea, and you come to me and you're like, "Look, you know, we've been making plant based th- like it's a plant based taco place. We've been making plant plant based tacos, but I want to make fucking fish tacos. Cool, do it. How can I help you? Mm-hmm. What can I do to to get you set up to make that happen? Mm-hmm. I think that's an important element of it. Yeah, and um, and I and I wish more people would do that. There's specifically a restaurant group here that is fucking definitely not doing that and probably has the ability to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, and, and those people tend to dominate the market for a while. And it takes just young people. It takes literally, it takes fucking you. You know what I mean? It takes a guy like you. Right. And I mean, yeah, the, you know, it, it it is unfortunate. Like the barriers to entry are significant. Like we got very lucky. Yeah. Well, it, we, and we worked our. I mean, we worked our asses off, and we built. We built a good business. Um. With the stand and the stands, um. So we like put ourselves in a position to be, um. We put in a lot of work to be put in a position to be given an opportunity. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's a lot of money. It's a lot lot of money. Yeah. And your story, and I think that your story would have been a little bit different also if you had just gone from like slanging Coca-Cola coolers to saying, let's open a restaurant. You guys built 
some equity in the business and you build some equity in the concept and approved yes. a concept yes. and then move fo- moved forward yeah. but the barrier of entry entry is absolutely impossible there yeah. is no fucking way any at any level even even talking about in los angeles six figure salaried chefs are never going to save to open a restaurant in los angeles you got to have a minimum of two and a half million dollars you know, nobody, how long is it going to take you to save two and a half million dollars or get a loan, get a loan for yeah. two and a half million dollars with a salary of 120 mm-hmm. being a chef, which in is a, a restaurant market. In a restaurant, exactly. Yeah. exactly. I mean, here there's like, I mean, I think there's like maybe three banks that will even consider giving a loan for a, a, a restaurant. Yeah. And most of them will not even, they'll just tell you straight up, like, we, we don't do that. Yeah. There's no way to recover that fucking money. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. What are you? <laughs> it's like so funny. You make an equipment list for like the collateral, and it's like, yeah, <laughs> that equipment is worth absolutely nothing. I've looked at places. I mean, yeah, I was looking at places around here, and they're selling restaurants for you know, they're trying to sell their old equipment essentially because the concept is dead without the person there. Um, and so, I yeah, it's. And also being, you know, you didn't come, there is people who come from, from money also. I know people in Los Angeles that come from money and had family money to start projects. Mm, And if you don't come from that, you almost, and, and I've been in the position where I knew that this was the path that I was going to take, but I could not really see a light. Like I, before even in Los Angeles, that's what I was looking for. I was looking for like, I'm going to start my own thing, but I need to find the person, right? And the person, finding that person is also like one in a million. You know what I mean? Like you just get lucky and you get that. There's so much ta- raw talent that's mm-hmm. so much better than what's in the market that just is undershined or doesn't have the social ability, the, the social capabilities or skills to communicate with those on that level with those people. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't sit as a fucking, as a chef or a fucking bartender, you can't sit at a table. I'm, a lot of times you can't sit at a table and have a conversation about business with a multimillionaire. No, I, <laughs> you know, I like fumbled my way through that. Yeah. And felt like completely out of place. I mean, we're on, we're in our fifth year. I still don't feel entirely comfortable. Yeah. You know, like with that, with that crowd. Um, so yeah, I can only imagine, like, I think about myself back when that, you know, back when we were doing that, I felt like a fish out of water. Yeah. Because at the time you had some management experience at some bars in Vermont, but like had not played that market. Mm-hmm. No. Was it a hard decision when you, when you decided to, when you were like, we need a restaurant because we got to stop playing this fucking game we're playing was there was it hard to say we're going to take investment did you feel like you were going to lose something in that in that process um well it was yeah it was a more complicated than that because um we we had we we had the space we had um a bank that was um going to give us a loan and then when like we started applying Essentially, like just to make a long story short, uh, my my original business partner Shane decided he didn't want to open a restaurant. Um, so 
I went from being having like a partner where I'm 50-50 and we have sort of like, we know what we're going to, like we, we have an amount of money we're going to put up. We're going to um, get out a loan for the remainder. We're going to, we're going to open this restaurant to now I'm a sole owner of a hundred percent and I need this amount of investment in order to push the loan through. Um, so it wasn't, a, it, I had like, yeah, it wasn't that, it wasn't a hard decision. We were kind of already at the finish line. When, when all this went down. Yeah. So you were like, fuck, we gotta go. Yeah. And then we were kind of lucky that we were in that position because I don't know if I would have found investment. The people who ended up investing were, um, let's just say they were, um, um, highly incentivized for the project to go through. Okay. They were our landlords. <laughs> so like they're, they're already fitting the space up. Yeah. And now, and we're sharing the space with another tenant. So if we don't, if we back out, the whole project probably t- goes in the toilet. And the other tenant is all souls. All souls. Yeah. yeah. So if, if we, if it doesn't work out with us, you know, they're probably back at square one, this commercial space that's been empty for at that point, at least a year, if not two years, mm-hmm. you know, so they were highly incentivized to see it go through. Um, so we're kind of lucky that it happened in that. Cause I don't know if I would have, I don't know if I would have found. Yeah. The money. It wasn't like a, it wasn't a, like in terms of a restaurant being opened, it was not a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, it was a, for me, it was like a shitload of money. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But I know, I know what you guys have, like, and I know what you guys have done with what yeah, you have. Yeah. Does that, does having your landlords involved financially, A, does it benefit your, your rent? situation I, I don't mean benefit by like making it cheaper but does it like does it like give you some comfort in the rent situation and um and i guess also yeah like benefit financially and, and b does it like make you feel did it ever make you feel uncomfortable like there was like a certain expectation from them about this thing's f- functioning because they were you're the owner of the building and also the owner of the business um no because well there's two there's two people, two individuals, one of whom is like, well, both of them are completely and utterly hands off. Yeah. Um, and have always been like, they don't make any suggestions. <laughs> They're not like, you know what you should do? Have you thought about that? Like none of that. Um, but like, and one of them I, I've pretty much never speak to the other one. If ever I have a question, he picks up my calls you know, returns my emails. He's a very savvy business person. So, um, it's, it's, and like they're, 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 they're very legit business people. So like, um, like we're not getting any sort of, <laughs> we're not getting any sort of cut on rent or like discount on rent. And I fully expect that when, uh, like we go to exercise our last, renewal option on the lease or like when we have to renegotiate the lease, like (laughs) they're not going to like pull any punches. I don't think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. These are like, yeah, they didn't get to where they were, I think by like, yeah, by cutting people breaks. Yeah, for sure. 
and how does that work? Like, I guess one of the reasons I asked that question is because there's another barrier of entry. It's like really inside the business model of a restaurant, probably the most critical aspect is that the majority of restaurants that exist are existing in places that they do not own. And so there's right. is going to eventually become a point where that specific portion of the business's finance is going to become compromising to the business or can become compromising to the business. And right. that you can't always feel comfortable inside that space, right? Of course, there's things about being a tenant that, that are beneficial, like sure. not having to worry about all the bullshit. But a lot of times in restaurants, you, you still are, are responsible are. for whatever the fuck happens there. <laughs> And so with certain, yeah, like there's like structural things or like yeah. if, if it needed a new roof, yeah, for example, or there were like foundational issues. Yeah. Um, that would, that would be on the landlord. But yeah, like if our HVAC goes down, that's us. Yeah. And so do you, is there, I guess they're your fucking business partners, right? So like, is there a way for you, is that a vision of the future to own that building? Is it a, even a possibility? We have the right of first refusal. Mm-hmm. It's in our lease, but um, like in my conversations with, uh, you know, the 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 one guy, um, like I don't think they have any plans to ever sell it. Yeah, um, but it, that would be that would be incredible. But then it goes on to somebody like, and I think that the sticky situations come from the, then that going to the next in line and then you've got to have a new relationship with this next in line who might not be exact. Like that's where those stick, because what we're talking about and what you've been talking about is building like a stalwart in the community. And it's like, there's going to come a time in that, in that process where the owner is not going to be the owner anymore. Right. And especially not going to be the guy. And especially if they're unwilling to sell, if they're like, we're never selling, we're going to die and we're going to pass. I don't know if they have kids or not, but they're like, we're going to pass it on to our kids or someone or our family or whatever it is. They, you're going to, it can be a sticky situation. You can get lucky and it can be a fucking great situation or it can be like, yo, we get this building now and we want X amount more than what it's worth. Or, you know, now we own part of your business. Right. And, no, that is tough. And in looking for like, so trying to open this ice cream parlor and it's be like the relationship I have with my current landlords, mm-hmm. like has made me realize how important that relationship is. So like looking at other places and talking to other potential landlords, I'm like, a lot of times I'm like pretty quickly, like I will not, like, I can't do this. Yeah. Cause I just, I know how good it can be. Mm-hmm. And like this just is a nightmare. And like you said, like I'll never feel comfortable. I'll never feel like I'll feel like they're at any point, like either something can break that is affecting our business and they're not going to fix it or they're going to try to make us pay for it. Or there's going to be some sort of fight here. Um, or if we start doing well, they'll try to, you know, hit us on rent. They're not treat us fairly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean that's that that's really really tough. And then I mean, real estate, like, good luck. Like, yeah, you know, actually buying a place. Yeah, that's the 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 wildest part about owning a rest owning a and not just a, a restaurant, but like most businesses live inside a rented structure. Yeah, so it's like you don't shit. own shit. You don't own shit. You own a name. That's why I think it's so fun. Like some 
like, oh, you own Taco Gordo. It's like, yeah, what is that exactly? <laughs> you own a name. <laughs> you own a name. I mean, you do, you, you do, you, you, what you I own. Do, I do actually own the trademark. Yeah. Like and, the, yeah, the name. Yeah. And you, and you own an ideal, but this is like, so this is, this is, again, I had talked to you about like a couple restaurant spaces that I was looking at, like, I want the fucking space, but these people are trying to sell the restaurant. It's like, no one wants to buy your shit. No, maybe somebody does. Actually, I, I guarantee there's somebody that would be like, I will buy Taco Gordo because they think that they're going to be able to make Taco Gordo happen, but they can't. Right. It can't exist without you. And I think that everybody should recognize that. Like the, you, you, it will can turn into something else that can still be successful, sure. but it's not going to be the same thing. It won't be the same thing. And that's, yeah, I, I I just have no. I've never really had an interest in getting involved in in that type. That's why everything that I've done has been like I'm ready to kill it at any minute. Mm-hmm. Like I'm ready to kill any concept or any idea at any moment because I know how impermanent it can be. And until you build, I think until you build something or like you have a cool relationship with your with your landlords, um, you know that might be a solution. But again, that's like someone in a million shit. Yeah. You know, a lot of landlords don't even give a fuck what's good. They don't care. They might not even come to the restaurant and eat or, or the bar or whatever it is. Um, and they don't, they care about their bottom line. For sure. Yeah. Well, and that's how they got, like for most of them, that's how they got the place. Yeah. To where they are or well, for some of them. Um, you said something earlier I wanted to circle back to. That's yeah, cool. go for it. Let's circle. Very beginning of the conversation. Yeah. You're talking about, um, you were listening to a podcast, Dan Barber was on it. Yeah. The price of food. I think about that all the time, like price of food. Yeah. And that, like I hear people talk about like not spending money on food. Mm-hmm. I find it to be like the craziest shit. Mm-hmm. Like the thing that, Without it, you will die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're not willing to spend money on it. In our budget, like my personal budget with Kirsten, mm-hmm. we spend a lot of money on food, yeah. like by design. I mean, because it's it's so incredibly important. Yeah. Right. And and like, if you're going to like, and also complaining about the prices at a restaurant. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are definitely exceptions to this, but. Generally speaking, right, the price, the menu price at a restaurant is a function of how much money it costs to produce the dish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Generally speaking, I mean, obviously there are exceptions. But. To not have to cook it. Pardon? To not have to cook it at your house and mm-hmm. to be served, yeah, right? That yeah. as well, yeah. yeah. So if it's expensive, it you could reasonably assume like, yeah, a number of things like either they're using nice product, which should be make you feel good, or yeah. like they pay their people well, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe they just like spend too much money fitting it up, and yeah, the debt service <laughs> is sky paid. high, and <laughs> yeah, they got to get paid. But um, like when people complain about like the price of food being being high, I just I don't know. It like how can that be something you don't want to spend money on? Yeah, I it's I, elemental. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that if you look at, so I'll go first on like the food side and then the restaurant side, um, uh, on the food side in both, in both facets, it kind of works in a similar way on the food side. There's, uh, 
there's definitely a barrier of entry for like wholesome food, I will say, mm -hmm. you know, shit that's grown in soil, that's taken care of, that has the full nutrient profile that it needs to mm -hmm. provide for you. Um, there is a barrier of entry, obviously. Yes, right? and, yeah, that, and, that, yeah. and, and that's like, that's maybe most likely not the people who, well, maybe they are complaining about the price of food, but what they should really that's be- That's not who I've got. Yeah, that's- Yeah, a, yeah. yeah. I, I understand that you're not, I'm trying to like ruminate, like like pack this into a, into a thought of really the issue is that like in, in that setting, people are just not getting paid enough for the work that they're doing, right? If they are actually doing work, they're probably just not getting paid enough for the work or they, um, there's not enough, there's not equal opportunity for everybody, right? We understand that. As far as people complaining about food, the price of food that have the money to buy food, but have like all the fucking toys and have, you know, have leisurely lifestyles. It's absolutely ridiculous to me. I don't, I haven't been to a doctor. <clears throat> I haven't been to a doctor for an illness since I was a kid. I have eaten, I've always eaten what I know to be, I guess organic wasn't really like a huge thing when I was younger, but I've always eaten like things that were healthy. I've always taken care of myself with food. I've used food as my medicine yes. and as my nourishment. It's my fucking fuel. Um, and it's always been the thing I spend the most money on. I will absolutely spend way more. Like I have two pairs of shoes, but me and my partner, me and my wife spend a shitload of money on food. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that she did that before she met me, but she definitely sees the value in it. And, um, you know, our kid, we didn't get, we got one round of vaccinations for him. And after that one round of vaccine, it was the only time that I ever saw him get like feverishly ill. And I know a lot of people have a lot of friends who were unvaccinated. I, and look, I'm not fucking an anti-vaxxer. Like I don't care if that's what you choose to do. I just personally, we don't personally think it's necessary. Um, and I believe a lot of the reason why people need medicine is because they would rather spend money on the back end than the front end. Mm -hmm. Like instead of nourishing their bodies and taking care of themselves, they'd rather, they, because there's a fix, they know they can do whatever the fuck they want because they can just go buy medicine to fix the problem. Um, and it is wild that we don't have, that we haven't built a culture around that. And I think it comes, so then to the restaurant, um, like this will be two parts. Like one part is there is, a lot of circumstances where the restaurant itself is providing a lifestyle for people and its function is not to serve nourishment to their community. Mm -hmm. Your restaurant is not you. I mean, we've been talking, we talked for 45 minutes about that specifically. Um, so I think the onus is on the restaurant owner to provide a comfortable barrier of entrance for the people in that community that can af uh, uh, afford. And then there's another onus that I think that's on restaurants and especially they can justify higher prices by doing this. I think the onus is on a restaurant to only serve things that are beneficial from a nutrient standpoint to the people that they're serving. I think it's wild to me 
that there's a whole class of restaurants that call themselves farm to table, for example, because they work with a few local restaurants, but a Cisco truck still fucking pulls up at the end of the day, mm -hmm. right? Or that they claim to be, you know, a Vermont first restaurant when only 10% of the product that they buy comes from Vermont. And so I think the onus is is two part. And and then yeah, food should be, if if everyone's doing that, it should be justifiable. But I will say, like it is wild that people complain about it, but I will also say that there's not a lot of transparency in restaurants. When you go into a restaurant and sit down, unless you're someone who's been in the industry or worked in a restaurant, you probably have no fucking idea if anything that they're telling you is real. For sure. Like that's, you, that's a good point. You have no, when you go into, I don't care, I'll say it. When you go into farmhouse group, mm -hmm. I think that what your assumption is, is that what you're being served is Vermont food because that's what you're made to believe. And I don't think anyone questions it. It's not what's happening for sure. Like it's absolutely not what's happening. And it's not just them. It's a lot of restaurants, you know, the, I, I talked about this, I think with, uh, with Bob, the Vermont Fresh Network has, gives these awards for people, this marking for people who use Vermont product. The barrier of entrance is 10%, like the, the entry level is 10%, which is crazy. And the gold standard, like the highest level is 35% wow. Vermont product. Well, I mean, what is 35% Vermont product? If you have a diner and you serve a lot of pancakes, is maple syrup get you that cut to be on the gold <laughs> standard, you know? And sure. so it's a, it's a crazy situation that we're in. And I hoped that during COVID when supply chains collapsed, and um, this is coming with a question to you, when su supply chains collapsed, I hope people would had, had, could have started, start to recognize, could have started to recognize that we needed to reinforce local food sheds and we needed to look at how we can become sovereign were you guys affected in the supply? I mean, you guys use a lot of local shit, right? Um, the tortillas. I mean, not, not, not that much as much as we can. We're so we're value driven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I know you can't, I know you don't get tomatillos from Vermont in the winter time, for example, like right. I understand or, that avocados. There's, or avocados yeah. or limes. Like I understand those things right? right inside your model, but what you can, you do use. Yes. Um, and especially like anything that can be anything that's local that is competitively priced will, uh, even if it's like more expensive, if it's at least like close, yeah, we'll opt for the local option. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, we, not as, you know, definitely not like a, we're not a, um, um, like a mission driven business in that way. Yeah. So th this kind of relates <clears throat> back to the idea of, or this wholly relates back to food being affordable. So when you're a farmer and you start, and what I see a lot of, my perspective is I was working with a regeneratively organic farm on the coast of Oaxaca, who yeah. literally was a family that lived, their family lived in like a cement structure on the farm, on the 40 mm -hmm. acres. When they farmed, I think, you know, 40 hectares, sorry. I think they farmed like one hectare of that land. And they priced their product for the market. They 
slowly over time built better infrastructure in their house, better infrastructure in the farm. They probably could have priced their product higher because it's organic, but they chose not to because they knew it was feeding their community. Mm -hmm. So the reality is, and this is widely known now, you should listen to the Real Organic podcast if you haven't. Do you know about the Real Organic project? I don't know. I'll tell you about it after I finish this thought. But So the, the idea historically has been that organic is far more expensive and you get far lower yields. While it's true that you get lower yields if you are farming in a systematic format where you have multiple products and not just one product and they're all products that benefit each other and they're all different price leveled products. You're not right. just selling like lettuce, for example, is almost impossible to make a lot of money on unless you sell it expe- for a high price. That's one of the things that I worked on uh, with that farm on is like introducing those market, those products to the market, other products. Um, so uh, I do think that when I look at the farming community, um, there are people who have entered that community who are accustomed to a certain lifestyle who want to continue to live that lifestyle and so there is built into their price structure, their life, like in farming, right? So like if they came in in their life and they're driving new cars and having nice things, they're going to need to build, bake into their model, the car payment for the $60,000 a year car, the mortgage for the half million dollar house, whatever those things are in the mm-hmm. same way in a restaurant structure, it exists. So historically, the people who haven't done that are you know, the, the people who have grown up in that system, the marginalized communities, let's call it. So, um, I, I do think that there's there, you as a business should be able to afford local product. There should be a pricing structure. I believe inside those businesses that allows for taco Gordo to sell a hundred percent Vermont meat. There should be we should have a food shed that supports that type of business Mm -hmm. and makes it still accessible to those people. There should be varying levels of pricing, right? Sure. Almost. Um, There's obviously a pay what you want model doesn't work because there's rich people who are stingy and that's probably why they're rich. But um, there should be a model where it works. And I think it comes, it's this, and this is really what I'm working towards in this space and like with the fermentation and the studying of ancestral techniques is like, there's also enough tomatillos grown in Vermont for you to support your business. And there's probably a lot left on the table at the end of the, at the end of the year that are sold at essentially nothing. Mm. And the problem is we have nowhere to store that food. We have nowhere, we haven't built any community structures that would store that food. Right. Normally a cooperative, which city market is called a cooperative. And I don't really, still don't really understand why it's called a co-op, but like normally a cooperative could be a place where farmers could come and, and store their, their, their wares when they don't have storage for them. Right. Um, and so there's some farms that do it, you know, I think Pitchfork does that, right? They have a fucking huge storage space. I'm not sure. Um, do, do models like that exist? Like the, the one that you were describing where, um, like there's different level, different levels of pricing. Not that I know of. I mean, of course it exists in the sense that, so I was listening, I listened to, uh, do you know uh, uh, about Alinea, the restaurant Alinea? Yeah. And do you know about their group? 
uh, not a really. linear group. I, I know that they open like they open the cocktail. Yeah, yeah. I, not really, but I don't know about the group now. So they also the initial investor in Alinea, Nick Kakonis, um, he's a visionary of 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 changing the way restaurants function. And him and Grant Ashatz, um, I've listened to I listened to a, a great podcast with Nick Kakonis. I use their booking platform. It's called Talk. There's like no customer review. You can't leave a review as a customer. There's prepaid experiences that you you can sell prepaid experiences. Um, there's a bunch of cool shit about the way you can book out. And they were talking about when they um, were building, you know, when Alinea started to make money, what they reinvested back into was like, they, they had this conversation about product buying and going to farmers and saying, hey, we know that we're going to, when they knew that they were booked out all the time, they were like, we know we're going to need X amount of beef for the next year. So let me buy a year's worth of beef today. I'll give you the money today for mm. a year's worth of beef. Right. And then we're just not going to talk about it. And that price dropped. I had a conversation with a cattle farmer the other day for a project that I'm working on for a project that I'm working on and explained what I was doing. It's called grass cattle company. And I was explaining to him, um, they're really cool. You should talk to that dude. Actually. He's like, he's, are they here? Yeah. They're in uh, Charlotte and they sell most of their beef out of state wholesale. And uh, he's on some advisory advisory boards. And one of the things he's pushing for is like local, how to make local beef viable, local mm -hmm. grass fed beef viable. Um, and I was explaining to him, he was like, we don't have a model where we sell to restaurants. Um, I know a lot of times restaurants want to go in and be like, Hey, we'll buy only from you. Give us a hookup. Cause we're always going to be buying for you, but that's not very viable for the farm, especially if you're right. buying specific cuts. But what I told him is like, we can buy whole cows. And we can get to a place where we have like, we're going to get one cow every single month, mm -hmm. right? And he's fucking stoked on that. He was telling me at the beginning of the conversation, like you should, it, it all comes down to buying power. That's why Cis, like Cisco and US Foods can provide the prices they do because they can buy inordinate amounts of product and store them at any one of their thousands right. of warehouses across the country and sell it out to a, and they've got a sales team that's going to go sell that product. So it's taking away from the farmer, the onus of having to do all that work. But if we, as a community of restaurateurs could come together and say, Hey, we're all going to get together and we know we need you to raise 600 head of cattle this year to provide for our five restaurants that the price of that, of that, of that animal is going to drop. Right. Mm -hmm. There's another thing that we face in in Vermont that's a difficulty, and I don't know if you know about it, but there's only like so many, pro there's only like four or five processing facilities yes. for animals in yeah. all of Vermont, which then becomes difficult again, because even if we buy it, it's got to go through that processing facility and then the bottom line cuts out. So I think what it takes is like, you know, there's no butcher shop in Burlington. I, I'm talking about protein specifically, because I think that that's probably like the the hardest one to, sure. to, to, totally. to battle with. Yep. Um, and so I think that there, there's no butcher shop here. There's no local place where like you could make a relationship with the butcher and say, Hey, I'm buying all these cattle. I'm going to bring them to you. You're going to butcher them. I'm going to pay you X a pound for butchering them. And you're going to cut it the way I want it. Mm -hmm. That's a, that shit used to exist and it doesn't anymore. So to answer your question, I have not seen any type of model work like that outside of like hearing that you know, Alinea is buying product this way. And a lot of high-end restaurants buy product that way. And that's how you get those discounts. It's just building some, and, and this would answer the plight of a lot of farmers. Like if a lot of farmers knew they were going to be able to sell their shit and not have to go out into a market, into the market and sell it, mm -hmm. 
or even, you know, put it on stores, even stores are volatile, even, you know, city market probably doesn't consistently buy the same amount of product from every single vendor all the time. Like right. they fluctuate what they're purchasing. So I think it comes back to like building a local food shed, you know, building, a uh, building a, what is Vermont food? You know, like what is, what is our identity on the plate? And then to extrapolate that out into consumerism, like, how can we speak about that product at the table? So then the consumer is going to go buy. And then how can we translate to the consumer that like, okay, you know, you have to be consistent in your buying practices. It, I, I definitely think that the, the, if we're talking about it coming back to like buying power, the buying power is always going to be more in the hands of a restaurant than it is a consumer. Sure. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it's something we could build for sure. You know, that's that. And that's my, and that's my goal. Like, that's what I've learned to look at in a restaurant, you know, in, mm -hmm. a, in, in that function. Like, yeah, that's exciting. I mean, that's running a restaurant. Um, that's definitely something that it's, it's one of the things that weighs heavily because some of the things, you know, we buy things that, I mean, we like with proteins, let's just keep it on proteins. We, we buy local when we can, um, and we we buy like the no hormones, no antibiotics, but most of it's not not being produced in Vermont. Yeah, um, and that, yeah, I mean that doesn't feel as good as like Pegasus in South Hero. We have a relationship with it's where we get all our our pork fat from that we render into lard. Yeah, um, we used to get a lot of our shoulders, our pork shoulders from them. Um, they don't, they don't produce as many animals. They're just kind of moving more towards, um, selling like breeding as opposed to processing. Yeah. Um, so they're just not producing as much. Yeah. Um, and they were competitively priced, um, compared to like some of the, the, like, what are the, what do you call it? Like ethically raised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Product that you could get from Black River or Reinhardt or something like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's like that and like just the amount of waste, like packaging. Yeah. Like I just have to compartmentalize that. Like it's something I like, it doesn't feel great. Yeah. It's kind of like a necessity. Yeah. Because it's just the way things operate, but you just wish, you wish it could be different. Yeah. And one of the unfortunate things is that it, could be different if the people who actually have that buying power and the ability in this market, you know, restaurants that, that do would be leaders. I don't think in, from my perspective, I don't think there's like a leader in this, in this city, as far as, you know, helping father a program that can make sure all the restaurants function. Right. What does that look like? Like, Restaurants banding together, like separate restaurants, or I think so. I think it. I think yes, that is it. But I think the 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 fathers of the restaurant scene, the big guys here, need to be the first people to make that happen because the little guys can do it for sure. Like, but it would take, you know, it would take fucking fifteen restaurants to do what to buy what somebody like you know. A, a farmhouse or a, a hen of the wood maybe would buy. Right. Mm -hmm. And they have, maybe it's just not in their, 
purview to take care of others, or maybe the community isn't what their drive is. I don't know. I, I, I don't, I, I hate to say that anyone's direction is, I mean, it's their own, you know, it's their choice, but yeah, it would take small guys coming together. It would also probably take some investment from the small guys. You know what I mean? That's really what it would take. It would take like, A, we're going to buy this much, but B, how do we build a community? How do we build a community of, how do we bring all these restaurateurs together and say, okay, look, you know, we're going to buy, we're going to go to, we're going to go to Pegasus or grass cattle company and tell them we're going to buy X amount of pit. We're going to put all of our numbers together. We're all going to be open with Mm -hmm. each other about what we buy. First Mm -hmm. of all, we're all going to open our books to each other. When the fuck's that going to happen? Right? Sure. I would, but like how many people will? And then we're going to figure out a way that we can put all these numbers together and go to farms, start going to farms and saying, we're going to buy all your product Mm -hmm. and then building confidence in that farm. Because then the farms, then the farms would, they would have the same kind of security that we would have. They would have the security knowing that their product is going to be it's sold. sold. Yeah, it's sold. It's sold before, right? Mm-hmm. You're buying futures in it. Yeah, You're subsidizing it with real money. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So at the end of the day, they have what they need. And you might even be able to give some of that money up front mm-hmm. or all of it up front. Mm-hmm. And then they're able to go through their process without having to struggle. Right. And then I think, this is just my view of this thing. And then I think you start seeing- the the sticky points in supply chain start to fall away. You know what I mean? Then you start to see the middlemen fall away, the salesmen fall away. The worst thing in the world to me is a salesman for a food company or a liquor company who just shows up at 5 fucking p.m. on a Friday night to see if you want the new pork product that they're selling. And you're like, dude, do you, you don't get, how many restaurants you go into? You don't get this. Mm -hmm. You don't understand this. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're just trying to do their job too, I guess, to some extent, but you know, uh, it, it does, it's a co, it would take a, like a real cooperative effort. It would take a Mm co-op, a real co-op. It's like this, the, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to talk shit, but it's particularly like the salespeople in Vermont are particularly bad. I think because it's like, there's only so many yeah. distributors. So like, they're not as competitive. Like, I feel like in, I don't know this cause I haven't, I haven't operated in a, in a larger market, but I can only imagine that in a larger market where it's more competitive. So like there's things that salespeople can actually do for you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, whereas here, I think it's just like, they, they're just like going through the motion. They don't really give a fuck. You know, it's like, okay, if you don't buy from us, well, I mean, especially now, like um, performance, food group they own black river they own reinhardt you know it's like so there's i didn't know any of that that's crazy yeah reinhardt bought reinhardt bought black river and then pfs yeah performance food systems or whatever yeah. bought reinhardt and so are they trying to meld those businesses together are they keeping black river as their like boutique pro- product okay. line i'm just like spec i'm like totally speculating but black river used to be um Way better than it is now. I, f- my sense is that they're like, I don't know if they care that they're in business or if they're trying to like run them out of business or something. Or if, mm. I, I wonder if Black River will like if it will continue to exist, um, or if it's just going to get like. How long ago did that happen? That sale, a few years. Because I see more performance. I've seen a lot of. Per- I didn't even. I have no idea who Performance Foods is. I've never. I worked. They're huge. <clears throat> they're like Cisco level. 
So in Los Angeles, it was really cool. We had, and, and I heard, um, when I was working on that project in Alberg, I was buying from Sweet Rowan Farmstead and they don't upload to any distributors. They sell direct, but they told me that there is a, there's a, a, a nonprofit, if you will, that collects products from the middle area of the state and then delivers them to Burlington like once a week. Mm-hmm. So I worked with a, a, a distribution company called LA Specialty, the only people I would buy product from. And they actually work directly with the farms to the extent that like there was a farmer's market on Wednesday where all the farms from, you know, within two hours would come Mm -hmm. and have all the product. And Mm -hmm. if you wanted to order from that farm, you could set up an order with the farm and LA specialty went there at like six in the morning and picked the product up and then delivered around the city. That's another thing, right? That's another thing when performance food buys up the market here, they're not going to go, they're not going to drive to Pegasus to pick up a bunch of shit from Pegasus, right? They're probably putting the onus on Pegasus actually to get the product to them, which is the way it normally works. Like if you have, if you work with Cisco, like the fast casual uh, experience was pretty interesting because I saw how this whole function works. We, I was working on the product itself. So my friend has a meat packing plant in Los Angeles called premier. It's a beautiful facility. They have all the best products. They supply high end hotels in Las Vegas all the way up to San Francisco. They work with, um, and so we were working on like these meat blends with very specific product. And if you have a fast casual, it has to be the same everywhere around the, the country, right? Mm-hmm. So Pr- Premier can deliver from Las Vegas, Los Angeles, all the way up to San Francisco, but they can't in New York. So what you have to do is you have to upload that product into Cisco then. And then Cisco ships it out to their facility and then they send it out to all the other places, right? Mm-hmm. So... um but premier me and the business had to do all of the logistic work to get the product to Cisco, right? Like they would have to have like all the logistics as far as like setting it. They had Cisco had to come with a truck, pick it up and it had to be done. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to work on the logistic aspect at all. Right. Like you're not going to see a performance food truck driving around, picking up shit from all the farms. Right. And so I do think that that's another area, another gap in the market, right. Is like, um, is, is figuring out a way to unionize or, or collectivize the distribution of food inside the state, you know? Right. And that could cut out, that could also affect pricing. You know, if we're all invested in it, you know, yep. because you're paying when you buy from performance food, what you're paying is, well, the person who's probably paying is the, the, the farmer on the back end. Cause you're, you can buy probably the same product. You can buy the product for the same price direct from the farm or performance foods. And the only one losing is the farm then in that model, right? right. When they sell the performance food. Yep. So I, I guess I think that's it. I think we got to fucking band together and start some shit. Like, like I heard about that and I was like, I can't believe that I have not heard of that and that more people haven't heard of that. Right. Cause I think a lot of people would choose that option. Of course. But no one wants to, I, I think no, I think also in a restaurant, especially in this market and in, in all markets, there's like so much shit going on. It's like, who starts that? Right. It's gotta be somebody. Detached. And then inertia. I mean, yeah. Inertia is just, it's huge. Like it's the way things have, 
have gone mm-hmm. are the way they're going to continue to go until some force acts upon it. Yeah. And it it did feel like it would have been it would have been amazing if COVID had that it had that effect on like labor. Yeah. That's been amazing. Uh like I just hired a or well not just maybe six months ago. I heard a prep cook who like he tried out like six different restaurants. You yeah. Know? He was able to do like that's fucking amazing. Yeah. Like the the amount of power that a cook has now. Yeah. To make more money and choose an environment that they want to work in mm-hmm. is is amazing. And that, you know, that didn't exist before COVID. COVID really sort of like kicked that. I think it was something that was slowly happening, but it's it accelerated that process. Um but with the the supply chain I think proved to be more robust than or or like COVID wasn't disruptive enough to the supply chain where it really forced us to create that resiliency locally. Um, yeah, and not the- not not go not just continue to go to these larger distributors for yeah, I think it was. The, I think it was that it wasn't long enough. Maybe of a of a, of a break, and then also, I don't think people were asking the right questions. Like, I don't think people were asking or, or looking at it the right way. I think they were saying we need to fortify that system. Sure. Yeah. Instead of saying we need to reinvent the system. We need to fortify that system. We always have a question, I think, as human beings questioning things that have become second nature or reflex. And so I think what happened was people were just waiting for shit to get back online. Mm-hmm. People weren't not everybody was looking for solutions to the problem. And maybe not enough people were, you know? And then when it kicked off, like there was a <clears throat> there was a thing in that happened in California called like the restaurant independent restaurant coalition. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to say, look what they're, what they were looking for money for. And this goes back to the, this is like the functionality of a restaurant, what, and the buying power and like how we shift the way we look at buying food when usually what happens. And especially in places like California, when the restaurant starts to hit a stride and become successful. They look at reinvesting that money in a second pro another revenue stream, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's so many people in that in that in that business relationship that need to get paid for them to continue. They, first of all, we went through this phase even before COVID for about 10 years, I would say, where restaurants and food became way cooler than it ever was. Mm-hmm. And so people were just capitalizing on that shit. They were like, boom, boom, boom. Let's keep opening. We'll take on exorbitant, exorbitant amounts of debt because we don't see a glass ceiling to this situation that's happening. And so when COVID hit and all these people were fucking deep in the money, what they had been doing to float their business is they, everybody gets this, everybody gets 30, 30 day terms on food. Mm-hmm. I have never really understood that concept because if I, if I, and ordering food every day or ordering food every other day or every three days. And I'm going through all that food. I should be able to pay for that food, but the structure of the business doesn't function that way right now in Mexico, you buy all your shit up front. Cash. Like in, 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 in Mexico city, no, but like in the rural area I was, yeah, you buy your shit. You go to the Mercado and you buy your shit. Or like me, I was buying it from a farm. I paid that farm then. 
Mm-hmm. I wasn't getting 30 day terms. I was buying all my shit up front and I was selling it. And it taught me a lot about operating a viable business, right? Not taking on overhead. So when COVID happened, all these, all the people, the restaurants that were complaining about not make or crying for help from the government were crying for help for government, for the, from the government to pay off. Like one of the things in that bill was like, these restaurants need to pay off their 30, 60, 90 day net terms for the product that they have. If it's food, that shit's gone. You know what I mean? So like, so like it should be really easy. And then I do understand that like a lot of people didn't have jobs. That's cool. But those people were getting help from the government also and could have got help from the government. Right. Mm -hmm. And we could find a way to make that the thing, but it's not about, it's about, it's all relates back to like building infrastructure that's beneficial for everybody inside a food system and not using like not leveraging food for a lifestyle. It's wild that we commoditize shit. It's wild that this is fucking crazy that you pay for water. (laughs) You ever think about that? Like you need water to live and someone literally owns your water. The water that you run, you pay for water at your business Mm -hmm. is water. Essentially what you're paying for is the infrastructure from the city, right? The city, right. Yeah. But we're not paying. Yeah. You're paying, you're paying. It's a public utility. It's a public utility. It's a public utility. But, you know, is there enough tax dollars to support that infrastructure? What what should a city give? What should a community? We use the term community because that's what we're talking about when we're talking about building this entire thing. Mm -hmm. What do you think? a community should be able to afford. Like, do you, have you thought about a model that works for a community? For a community? Yeah. Yeah. I think about this. I mean, I think about it more on like a, uh, like a society level because, um, and we don't have to like go into the talk. We don't have to start talking about healthcare, but I think about it like in that, like, cause to me, I think healthcare should be at least in a society as wealthy as ours. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we should be able to provide, um, healthcare, to everyone, get it off the backs of businesses, and then, like that stressor in people's lives, and I think we see productivity go up. Um, people don't have to. Um, the demands on them to make the money to pay for healthcare is alleviated, right? Yeah, they pay the taxes, but it's, it's not free. But um, so I've I've given it thought in the, in that sense, but. Um, not so much, I guess, in the city. I mean, in, you know, basics, water infrastructure, you know, yeah. um, roads, sidewalks. Yeah, I, <clears throat> healthcare is an important element of it or a good, like, talking point on it. If you, I mean, uh, people are so fucking scared of the word socialism or communism. And every time someone- like, We I, need new words. We definitely need new words. But the funniest thing is when you, like communism is one that's been thrown around a lot. And every time someone says something to me, because of course, like I say, you know, I align with anarchist ideals. Sure. People are like, he's a fucking communist. Like, okay. And so my first question is, have you read the communist manifesto? Mm Because it was a fucking manifesto, dog. It wasn't like a plan. It wasn't like, it was literally a manifesto about how things should work. It was not a plan. And then people took that idea because it's very easy to take an idea like communism and use it for power because the idea is that the government gives every, like essentially the government provides everything. Right. Mm -hmm. But then if the government is perpetuating itself through 
family lineages and right. and in in capitalist movements and taking control of product and giving only small amounts of it back to the people of course it's not going to work mm-hmm. right of course that's not really what Marx had in mind when he wrote that manifesto. Mm-hmm. His was more about work, like socializing a workforce, right? Right. My understanding is that like value came from labor, right? And yeah. so yeah, 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 absolutely. And really more, I think like the for me, the the over arc, like the the punch down is of the idea is like that people who operate industry should be the ones who make the decisions and manage that industry because at the time things were, you know, it was, everything was becoming, um, industrialized. And so there was factories where dudes who were fucking sitting, who've never operated the machinery, telling guys who are operating the machinery, what to do with the machinery. Mm-hmm. It's the same as a grill, a stove, a fucking cocktail shaker, a field, any of those things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think that in that model, everybody makes a collective decision about what everybody gets. And then healthcare can be included in that. And then we can use, like tax could be levied for those specific things, but there would be oversight. You know, um, I don't know. I know you've been to Oaxaca. I don't know how much you know about uh, the Zapatista movement in, in not Chiapas. Much, not much. I'm, I'm like <clears throat> vaguely familiar with it. So- Emiliano Zapata was uh, part of the Mexican revolution and he was the one fighting for um, getting land back in the hands of indigenous communities, essentially saying that we don't, no one should own land, right? It should, mm-hmm. The community should own the land and then everybody should have the ability to use that land. Everybody should have a piece of land. Everybody should be allowed to work or function on land um, in, in, the rumblings of the Zapatista movement started in the eighties. And then in the nineties, it came to a head for a similar reason because NAFTA was getting passed. So this was like really when they came out is because NAFTA was getting passed. Um, and NAFTA, the North American fair trade agreement was essentially as the Zapatista saw it, just like the second coming or like the, the decimation of the ideals that Emiliano Zapata had fought for, the land was just going to get used. The idea behind NAFTA was that, was that um, there's going to be free trade and the United States was going to, in Canada, we're going to buy up or utilize land in Mexico to create jobs and industry in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Really they were just coming for cheap labor, labor, like and cheap land. That's what they were coming for. And the Zapatistas saw this. So they essentially congregated in the, in the jungle of Chiapas. Um, they actually, uh, the day that NAFTA was passed, um, into, into office, they, they took over on January 1st, like, while everyone was fucking celebrating, they took over, um, uh, San Cristobal, the, the, de las casas, the, the capital city. And, um, since that point in time, they've functioned autonomously in the jungle. Um, they have their own, they, they live in what's called caracoles, which are like small communities, um, that all come together at points. Um, anyone inside the, um, the leaders are only, uh, leaders are, is it three months or three years? I'm blanking, but it's a very short one. It's three months, I think. Every, leaders of the community are three months at a time and it rotates. And mm-hmm. when you, at 15 years old, you become uh, eligible to be a leader of the community. Mm-hmm. 
And um, it's actually majority female now. So that's another thing is like equality between human beings in general. But they've thrived on this system of working in small communities and governing in small communities. And, um, and it was off the back of the ideals of communism, communes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it could work and I think it could work in a place like Vermont, you know, I think if, uh, but you, there's this veil. So what they're, the way they're living, they're not driving fucking Tesla's. You know what I mean? They mm-hmm. don't have fucking iPhones. They have Chiapas is the lowest crime rate in all of Mexico. Uh, they have exceptional healthcare. They have exceptional education. It all happens inside their community. That's all they're concerned about is their community surviving. So those are those are. I, I mean, I think that when you when you what do you want to achieve in the world? Like, what do you want? What's your end game? Like, what do you want? You know, what I I can tell you what I want. I just I want to fucking I would like to just be able to live with my family wherever, like a small house in the fucking middle of nowhere on a bunch of land where I have a community around me where I can get, I can trade my neighbor, my, whatever I process of their food back to them. They can grow the beef. I can process it. I can store it. I can ferment it. I can do all these things. I think that's function, mm-hmm. you know, spend time with my family, love my family, love my community, love my friends. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do? <laughs> um yeah i mean i want i i just want to i want to make a decent living take care of my family uh yeah have a home yeah i mean pretty simple um not terribly ambitious um, i think that i think that you know my my question always is like i think the great question is like how do you draw i still want to travel and see shit right so how do we make a system that requires money function without money. Like I can't give United Airlines a fucking <laughs> a bottle a of hot sauce of for a side <laughs> of V for a flight, right? Yeah. So that's the question. Money is necessary right now. You know, I understand what it is, but it's just a fucking IOU. It's just a p- printed piece of paper. Yeah. That's bullshit and can go up in flames at any time. For sure. Especially now. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fiction. We yeah. just agreed that it has that it has value. Well, I guess the value is the the might of the United States military. It's yeah. fucking horrendous. I'm scared right now, dude. Yeah, I'm scared. I'm scared about. Uh, I think not a lot of people pay attention to to war, to like the threat of the impending doom that nuclear missiles impose on this world, and that literally one push of a red button could incite the end of our times. Yeah. I'm actually more concerned about that. Although I'm, I I know we need, we need to be like, I'm uh, obviously always talking about how we need to do better ecologically. It's fucking scary right now, man. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. It's, it's wild that we somehow believe that we have, a force field thrown up around us. We're pushing the buttons of the wrong people in this country. <laughs> do you, do you, are you, do you get into any of that shit? Do you, do you um, pay attention to you? Like, you know, like fucking what's going on in shit, like war games are happening in China and fucking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I pay some attention. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly like a year ago, 
when the Ukraine war first started, yeah, um, I became like incredibly terrified because I mean that was just, I it, it remains terrifying, yeah. Um, but I guess it's gone on long enough, and you kind of just go about your life, yeah. Um, but you're I, you're you're one hundred percent correct. I mean, it's just it doesn't it just takes that one, and then. Yeah, and then we're living in that world. Yeah, and that's a, a, again why I think it's so important for us to focus on what's inside our bubble, you know, mm-hmm. because what we saw with a pandemic is a, a fucking drop in the bucket compared to what would happen if any of these powers that for sure have just as much power as we do decided the time was right to reclaim their debt, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like fucking, yeah. If you look at the U S debt counter, you can, you can Google that shit, open it up online. No. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of that. And all that debt is just fucking all that debt is just interest to China <laughs> yep. daily. Right. Yeah. We're, we're, we're very much in their pocket. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess at least what I allow myself to think is that, the entire world has become so incentivized for that not to happen that it won't happen. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> I try to tell myself that, <laughs> but, but, I, but how we've become so deeply intertwined. Yeah. That it, it, it just strikes me as being unlikely that anyone's going to, um, disrupted on a level that would that would like bring it all crashing down kind of but do you you don't you didn't see but that any, might be naive i mean i i'm not, I, I admit that but i'm not saying it's naive but you didn't see any flashes of 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 that um of the counter to that during like for example trump's presidency when people were marching through the street and battling and fucking yeah, I civil mean, war was pen, impending, which it still probably is. You but. still hear, yeah. I mean, um, that's yeah. No, that's terrifying. And the fact that he became president, and and I mean, straight up, I mean, he's like an authoritarian. Yeah, you know. Yeah, want well, or maybe a wannabe authoritarian. <laughs> um, and that then that there's folks that still, you know, they want that um, is is scary and deeply concerning. And I mean, our country is. Um, it, it, it's like right there that, that, that it could go that way. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like it. And we live in, and we, and we live in a, a, we live in an, I, I believe that we live in illusion. Like we live in illusion inside our communities thinking that, um, that there's, we're going to be unaffected mm-hmm. or that, or even, even worse that it's going to be taken care of by the government or we have that, that government, government in general is looked at as the parents, you know, no matter how bad shit gets, we can rely on them. I think that people are, are looking are understanding now that that's not the case. Yeah, I would say that. Um, but, but I don't know if that's, yeah, I don't know that that's necessarily a good a good thing. Like, so like, like that we don't, we, we no longer have like an, like a shared identity. No, absolutely not. And our institutions are crumbling 
largely um, due to their own ineptitude or like chasing of money. Like you look at the media, right? Or like the New York Times, right? They're now, you know, they, they, the, you know, the paper of record, they used to be like a trusted source. People could generally agree that you could read that and get like some reflection of reality. And that's, that's definitely no longer the case. Yeah. Um, that seems dangerous. Yeah. I'm not saying that we should like blindly trust the New York times. You know what I'm, you know what I mean? Like just like, but that there's that within a society, there's a shared sense of identity and a shared sense of reality. Yeah. And, and increasingly we're living in different realities and that's going to, it seems like that's, that's not sustainable. Yeah. And I, I think it's in this, that scares me more than, more than nuclear war. I think it, I think it took me, and I don't know how it is everywhere around the world, but I do think it's because like living in a small corner of Mexico made me realize like I, the dude that I bought uh, maize from like to make tortillas and shit, he lived an hour outside of Puerto Escondido to get to his community. You had, you have to drive through a river to get there. They're in the fucking middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. A lot of those communities didn't even get COVID. If they did get, here's, here's the, the, the bad thing is they, they would send people out to the Mercado and when they go to the Mercado, they would get and bring back to the village and a lot of old people would die. But what their concern is, is that they collectively have an agreement about how to live. What we're trying to do in the United States is make the one of the largest countries in by land all live under the same ideals. Mm-hmm. Where if you go to Europe, the way you bounce to states here, you're bouncing to countries. And mm-hmm. inside each one of those countries, they have their own collective idealism right. about how to function. Mm-hmm. The only way I think a country the size of the United States collectively thinks one thing and 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 they don't all think the same thing but is it needs to it would need to be for, for for it to function as one specific idealism and purpose it would need to be everyone believing i mean it's what we try to do we try to believe in a, a single figurehead everyone would have to believe in that one person we know it's not possible there's fucking f- there's a myriad of of presidential parties and we vote on two Mm-hmm. So, you know, straight off the bat, even if we're just talking about those two, straight off the bat, 50, per, whatever percent didn't vote for that person is the divide, right? So let's say 60% votes for, for Democrat and 40 per, for Republican, 40% of the people don't fucking believe the same thing as the other 60% do Right. straight off the bat. You know, what bothers me about those figures too, is that it doesn't account for the people that don't vote. Exactly. Which is half- or more yeah. of the country. And how many, and so then in that system, how many of the people that you think, do you think that battle over who should be president or what the president is doing, know who their chief of police is, their mayor, their right. senator, their treasurer, all of those things inside the system are much more important sure. than who the president is. But it's all part of a system of control. Right, I believe it's all part of a system of controlling 
what's called capitalism, but it's not true capitalism. There, there's, there's people who are playing a game that we're not all playing, mm-hmm. you know? And then we're, our look into that game is like, you can choose who's going to play in this game for you, even though you don't really have a choice, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I just think like, you know, Burlington should be, Ver- Vermont should be a country and New Hampshire should be a country if we want to spread the boundaries that big. California is even too fucking big. That bitch should be cut down into three to be a country. But like, we don't from, you know, the ideals here are not the ideals in New York. They're never going to be. Right. Well, we would need to accept in order to do that, like us in Vermont would need to accept what they're going to do in Mississippi. Right. Yeah. And I think that first and, and similarly, people in Mississippi Mississippi are going to have to swallow what we're going to do in Vermont, right? And I think that's where people have serious difficulty. Um, right? Yeah, yeah, because because there's unilateral decisions being made over three over a a a, a span of earth that's 3000 miles on things that don't even affect differently in different climates, in different social structures. And, and then it creates a battle between the human beings that live inside that unilateral decision to jockey for position and get their voice heard. Mm -hmm. Right. I really just believe in this, in this, in this idea of, trying to break those chains. We can't really, the only way you can do it is like getting a piece of land in the middle of fucking nowhere, (laughs) getting some friends to move there Mm -hmm. and make your own decisions, but you're still going to live to some extent inside the rules of whatever that state is. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not an idiot. Like, I don't think we can walk (laughs) this thing back. I don't think we can walk this thing back. Right. And I don't know if there's a solution to the problem. I think it starts with us, with food, with community. Sure. I I, I would say that I think that we're well-placed in Vermont to do um, some pretty cool things if, if there was the will to do it in terms of being sovereign. Where does that will come from? People, people <laughs> deciding to spend their time doing it. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I, I agree. I, I think the prob I think the people that would have done that are, are gone. I think my grandfather's generation probably would have done that. My grandfather's from Vermont. Like my whole family's from here, you know? Mm-hmm. And and they were they were farmers, you know, they were working class people. I think working class people make the movement, but now we have a lot of um now we have a lot of uh people making decisions who have passive income, mm-hmm. who have uh there's a lot of land bought up here by people who don't live here. Right. And, and and are still capable of making decisions for here because they own a house or they own property or they own land. They might not even work in in inside the the economic structure of Vermont. Right. All they do is pay a little bit of tax. 
They right. don't benefit the state and they're making decisions. So it's a weird world to live in. I watched it happen in, in Puerto Escondido. A bunch of fucking right. digital nomads moved in and right. they're the ones making decisions about what happens now there. It's happening all over Mexico, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Specifically coastal towns. Coastal towns, yeah. You know, because that's where everybody everybody wants to be on the beach and right. fucking be enlightened. And now that's, there's, people are making money just posting on Instagram about products on the beach and they get to live there. And they're not, none of that money is going into the hands of local people. It's going back into the hands of the people that came before from another country, you know, and then maybe a little bit of, a little bit of it is getting spent on local products, but then, you know, most of what they're buying is buying into the system that NAFTA created farms from the North that are probably the money's not going back into Mexico, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and the crazy thing is that we're not far from, I mean, I've always I always viewed this as like, you know, everybody says Mexico's government is corrupt. Like ours is just as corrupt. They're just open about it there. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. just, they're just open. They just openly report about it there. There's not, you know, it's just, there's social revolution because really it's a still indigenous people fighting for land there. We don't have that here. We came and knocked down a civilization and then tried to recreate something. I mean, we're still... Where, I mean, 1492, dog, that's not that long ago. And and we think that in the amount of, we wanted to shun the ideals that had happened in the past. And instead of learning from them, I think we just created new problems. Instead of looking at like, what were those issues? Maybe in the beginning, that's how it was thought. But I think really it was just like freedom from oppression. That's what we're going to do. Freedom to do whatever the fuck you want to do. That's what we're going to do. Not like, okay, is that where it started? And then people started, and then because- there wasn't infrastructure in place. All this bullshit birthed itself from the process. It's probably the case. So we probably could have looked at historically what happened and then created a better system, mm -hmm. which is, I think, what we have the opportunity to do always. But there's people with guns, man. Do you know what I mean? There's people with guns and fucking bombs. <laughs> and that's our plight. Yeah. You're never, I don't give a fuck how much money you have. You're not as powerful as. A, a military, a government that has a military. For sure not. You know what I mean? No. Like you can only do so much, you know, we could take up arms. You know what I mean? We could take up arms and try to fight the fucking U.S. government. I mean, in, unless you got some people on the inside, you're not getting into the, you, I, they would just press a button. It'd be done. Yeah. That's not an option. Yeah. So the only option is to defect. <laughs> Fuck, dude. Two hours and 37 minutes, dog. Really? <laughs> yeah. Flows pretty easy when we're wrapping, huh? Yeah. Um, well, I guess we should we should probably wrap it up because I'm sure we'll do this again soon. This, this was, was fun. Yeah, this was this was incredible. And and um I'm stoked that you opened up and that you came out. I think that you're uh you're a, a shining example of what our community needs. And I as a Vermonter, as being somebody from born and raised in Vermont, I'm happy that people like you have come here thank you and That's, uh that means a lot and i i i hope you continue to do the work that you're doing i know you will i don't have to i don't have to question that but thank you i'm glad that there's people like you um you know i look at what you do it's inspiring um so i feel the same way let's keep this battle going Indeed. um so i'll put shit i'll put things in the show notes but um how can people support your work how can people find you how can people we're at tacos. We're right at uh, ice cream and two hundred eight North Winooski Avenue. Cool taco gordo. Um, the creamy stand is at seventy one South Union. 
in inside the laundromat. Yeah. Yeah. I know there's some interest. I do laundry though. There's some interesting notes on that door to the people from the laundry mat. Like, no, we don't have quarters. <laughs> don't go to uh little Gordo and ask for quarters, please. <laughs> All right, doc. Well, um, we'll probably be eating some burritos soon. So, uh, thanks again. Thank you. Let's do this again. Appreciate it. Love you, brother. Love you too.